Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by our sponsors, 420 Australia, your number one store for lifestyle and apparel, Organic Gardening Solutions, your one-stop shop to grow the best no-till around, and finally, Seeds Here Now. You know them, best in the business, guarantee on satisfaction, not just germination. Check it out. On this episode, we're joined by the amazing Josh and Kelly of Dragonfly Earth Medicine. Stay tuned for all the knowledge bombs. Let's get into it. Alrighty, so a big thank you and welcome to the dynamic duo, Josh and Kelly from Dragonfly Earth Medicine. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here. Thanks for having us today, so, first question I want to ask is, what are you guys currently smoking on? A homesteader. We actually have a big jar of homesteader here, which is um, one of our really long-time uh, strains. Uh, well, it's actually a cross of one of our really long-time strains. So, it's our Zelly's Gift times our 840. Um, and it has a temple spice as a female. So, we've been working with the, the Zelly's Gift for a while. It has a Jack Herrera mom and uh, a gooey mother um, clone that came from Oregon, which is really, really awesome that we love forever. And uh, yeah, we've been breeding up here for a long time. So we, we do have a lot of other people's strains. There's a lot of wonderful, amazing people that give us strains, but we really like ours um, because they're really um, you know intelligent for our area. So the Homesteader is kind of a, a uplifting, kind of lemony, um, High in beta caryophylline and has some really a beautiful full spectrum cannabinoid profile. It's like it's spicy. Oh, nice! And so, is that got any like um, CBD or anything like that, or is it a more THC dominant one? It's mostly THC dominant, but it's probably like a four to one. So we're guessing, you know, we, we wrote we go from seeds, so it would probably be like a maybe a 17 to 19 percent THC, and we're hoping for like an eight percent CBD. We're starting to breed more CBD into our THC varieties, and they still have a lot of flavor. And then they have this dynamic um, cannabinoid profile, which we really like a lot. And we're also breeding for the CBDV and the CBDN. And yeah, we're, but, we're breeding for the cannabinoids we don't know about yet. <laughs> yeah, that's such an interesting point to make because something I've always thought about kind of in my subconscious is what if breeders began to embed just a small amount of CBD in the background of profiles such that maybe people aren't aware that it's even there per se, but just everyone's kind of enjoying that added medicinal effect. Do you think that that's maybe something that will like come out more so in the future? Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, trying to have as much CBDs in there and still getting that nice high that people are looking for, you know, is is totally beneficial. So we've been breeding in CBD from an ACDC clone that we got a long time ago. And um, we have like a one to one and sort of a two to one and a three to one and a four to one. And we're just continually trying to make sure that that CBD makes an appearance in all of our know, new strains. We know that the uh, there's kind of like the hemp CBD and then there's the THC variety throwback CBDs. And that's where some of the original CBDs came from, CBD plants and stuff like the Harlequin and everything came from um, a THC variety um, that was, you know, thinking it might have had the the high 
um, CBD and then, you know, the tsunamis and the sour tsunamis and everything um, got created after that. But um, if you're not breeding, it's, it's, you have to be careful with breeding into the hemp to try and get your CBD varieties. When you find like a really flavorful high CBD that is easily breedable with the THC varieties, in our opinion, I think it's what along the lines of what you're saying, that's a real winner. Yeah, and then we just sort of keep our hemp uh, breeding with each other. We don't really see the difference between medical and recreational. And in fact, we would love to just sneak in whatever people consider medical into recreational because why not be medical while you recreate? Yeah, exactly. So you touched on a few interesting points there. The first one which jumps to mind though is one thing I've heard commonly is that some strains, particularly the CBD dominant ones, have this kind of general slash bland terpene profile. I think some people even refer to it as like a cherry kind of profile. Do you agree with that view? Like, do you subscribe to that or do you think maybe that's just a bit too nitpicky? Um, we definitely see that more in the hemp varieties, but now we have lots of friends that are in the industry that are starting to like pop like 1 million seeds and then they're testing 10,000 of those seeds. And one of their number one things that they're searching for is a wide variety of a terpene profile. So there's some new seeds out there in the hemp world um, called a spectrum. There's also one that's the cherry wine, one that's called a number five that really has beautiful terpenes sort of, you, you know, all over the map. So, yes, I do agree with you that sort of the cherry was the first flavor to come up in the high CBD hemp varieties. But now that there's just more searching out there and more testing, more terpene profiles are becoming apparent. And so another question I wanted to ask you is, I've found a strain by, I believe it's CBD Crew, and if not, it's CBD Seeds. It's one of the two. It's Shanti Barber's company. But basically, he says he's got a CBD strain where instead of having any hemp being brought into it at any point, he found a, a regular kind of, you know, THC dominant strain, which happened to have some CBD in it. And then over multiple generations, selectively bred it out, like selectively bred the THC out of it. He says the the advantage of this is that you don't get that hemp terp or and you get a little bit better bud structure. But the thought that I had was, is that really an issue with, you know, like for example, when we look at the work you're doing, is, is the bud structure from the hemp genetics, which maybe brought the CBD many generations ago, is that still evident or is it just not even there anymore really? Oh. Still looks a lot like the hemp when you get the hempy ones. Yeah, definitely. It still has sort of that, you know, smaller flower nodes, um, maybe even less of them on a plant. Um, Taller, thinner leaves, you know, I mean, really, you know, I feel beautiful terpenes and there's, I know people that are making oils out of it and even making rosin and stuff. So there's still, you know, there's still profiles there to go with, but yeah, I mean, there, there's really, there really is kind of the hemp varieties and then the, 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 the more broadleaf varieties. There's broadleaf CBDs is basically what you're looking for. And so in regards to kind of what I just mentioned with that uh, selectively bred out THC phenotype, would you be interested in looking at something like that or does the advantages on paper not really kind of seem like it's a worthwhile in exploration, so to speak? Definitely. We feel like um, breeding out the THC, you know, more in what is called the drug cultivar um, cannabis um, so yeah, being able to breed out the THC and up that CBD is going to give you those beautiful, you know, dripping resinous flower flowers. I mean, essentially if you, if you're a farmer or if you're, if you're going to start a business in a farmer, you're looking at it kind of like 
are you targeting no THC or CBD um, or high CBD with no THC, which allows you to sell more, you know, globally and more internationally. And that's a real, you know, that's a, um, an, an, an attractive incentive. So in that way, you know, breeding out the THC and just having the CBD is, you know, when, when if someone's putting in that much effort to create those seeds, those, those are really valuable. And, and we also know that the hemp variety, you know, sort of across the globe, it's that 0.3% that they're looking for so that it's, you know, uh, non-structured and it's not going to be necessarily put into the cannabis industry with restrictions. So if you're looking for that 0.3% THC, that's going to really be found in the hemp varieties. We're finding those super, super low THC. Um, and then you just want to, you know, up all of the rest of the cannabinoid profile and your terpene profile. Mm. So it's a big hunt in the hemp world as well as in the CB drug cultivar world right now. So I'm not sure if you guys would be familiar with this next part, but basically what I had noticed was whenever I had tried a CBD extract, like most notably the really highly refined ones, you know, like they're looking really white crystalline type of stuff. I just found like, it, yeah, it just really wasn't medicinal in the way that like, uh, say, a CBD flower was. Is this like a, you know, a, a kind of a pertinent point in your mind? Like, are you kind of on that same wavelength of like, it loses that medicinal value as it gets more processed? Absolutely. That means that you're just extracting just the CBD and then you've got that 99% CBD crystallate. And that means that it doesn't really have any other you know, terpenes in it for sure. There's no terpenes and as You're well as there's no cannabinoids. So you've lost sort of this dynamic profile where they all work together. You know, one, what you're saying there is really interesting because you could have something that, you know, is maybe a five milligram CBD and if it has CBDV in it and CBDN in it and it's sort of like a full profile, you're going to feel that so much more than say a hundred milligram straight CBD isolate. At least that's been what I've really has, experienced and other people have experienced across the board. And that has a lot to do with the terpenes, um, you know, and 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 the dynamic effect of of the entourage where everything's working together i mean and it's it's just it's almost pharmaceuticalizing it in the sense to to try and you know isolate or distillate you know you know certain parts of it and there's reasons for that and there's a lot of medicines you can do that so i'm not i'm not saying at all that's not a that's not a good thing but i feel like it, I do think you it's more dynamic in the um, in the uh, corrective medicine aspect of it when you get the other terpenes in there because they work together and they really create the your immune they really boost your immune system and in the end you know you're trying to boost your immune system and those are that endocannabinoid system will be charged up with the with as many different cannabinoids as possible and most of the doctors have 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 proven that through research is that you know one by one is a good one is a good yeah i definitely have found personally at least that the one-to-one -one seems to work really nicely for me if we take a little step back though from what we were just talking about with the the uh the ultra most extracted slash process end of things and we just go kind of more to the midway how do you guys feel about say extracts which have added terpenes put back in them do you feel like it's like a two-step forward three-step back type situation or what's your view well, I think that, that, you know, there's there's people using terpenes that are made from foods and they're just getting like mercine from wherever mercine comes from. And for sure, that's not really a, a, a thing that we that we 
you know, promote or, or condone at all. I mean, if you're going to use terpenes in there, they should be from cannabis. And really, I mean, the whole goal is to is to preserve your terpenes with your growing practices and with your um, and with your uh, your curing practices. And when you go to extract. I mean, hopefully you don't need to add any terpenes, but you know, when you're making different oils, you can get terpenes from it. And it, it is really fun to work with terpenes and do different things with it, the aromatherapy and different things you can do. But I think you have to be kind of um, gentle with, with using them for sure. Yeah. So last little thing I want to touch on, on this kind of CBD topic was, I watched a little segment of you guys talking on YouTube and you were talking about how you think uh, some CBD slash just funky, you know, cannabinoid profiles may be related to the soil itself. And that was a really interesting point. And the first thing I thought of is, do you think it's more related to the microbes or to the amendments you're using? Um, definitely to the microbiology, because if you've got a living soil, um, then you're really not feeding your plant. The focus then becomes that you're feeding the soil, and then that soil becomes a vast organism that then you're trying to feed. And and when you feed them, say, terpene-rich nutrients, then it's really the breakdown of the fungi and the bacteria and all of the different microbiology in there that then feeds it up to the plant. So I think to feed really, you know, biodynamic accumulators that are terpene rich is probably a really good idea, but it's going to go through the microbiology before it hits the plant. So there's always a through way, um, you know, with a beautiful living soil. And yeah, we've definitely found um, with testing with our medicine before that, you know, a lot of the, the facilities we've worked with have seen, you know, a really um, broad array of cannabinoids and even some really unique ones that they haven't seen before. And for sure, you know, science backs this is, is, is the, the, the microbiology is what really allows the plant to produce the secondary metabolites that it has. I mean, we definitely know if you grow one, a, the same clone and, you know, 10 different environments indoor outdoor and, and whatever it is with different even with different nutrients you will get different cannabinoid and terpene profiles so so for sure there's like a, there that's that's what's fun about growing this plant is that you know when you give it something really um unique it allows it to um express itself to its full full extent so so yes adding um a really really live and rich microbiology to your soil is going to really, really help, you know, the the diversity of your cannabinoids and terpenes. And we're going to be, we, we have been working with a lab here in BC for about a year, and actually they're going to be coming out to our farm, and we're going to be doing soil tests along with uh, plant tissue tests and really trying to get to the bottom of it, because this lab is seeing, like Josh had said, some really rare cannabinoids, and they don't even have the ability to test them all. So we really feel like we can give a seed that's, you know, our own, uh, you know, that we've been breeding up here for maybe 12 years, and we feel like it's it's a pretty stable strain after 12 years, and then we'll give it to somebody else, and those rare cannabinoids are maybe not being found. And we feel like maybe more and more rare cannabinoids are going to be found with you know, building of soil. So we've been on our land for now 11 years. Um, and, you know, what is it going to be like 15 years from now when our soils are built up to even more maximum? Are we going to be able to get cannabinoid profiles 
that are really rare, we believe that we will. And we and we have um, you know a long time strain that we've been using. And last year, all of a sudden, we had ten percent CBD in it out of nowhere. So we did have CBD show up, and for sure, there's a relationship within the soil and within the roots growing together. So we really envision that when we're growing and in the teas and everything that we're making, we're thinking, oh, how is this going to affect our rhizosphere and that community and that that neuro um, communication that happens within the soil? And it's super, I mean, we really love thinking about the roots and, and when we see the hyphae and all how it all goes together. And you it really, and, and, and people have even proven that there's electromagnetic, you know, pulses going through there. So plants communicating with themselves in the soil allow them to be healthier and ex- once again express themselves um, to more diversity. And we believe that you know cannabis is a social plant and the reason why we believe that is because it drops its seeds on the ground right around the plant and then all of that mother plant then drops all of the mulching leaves and actually feeds it to her next generation. So all of those seeds will sort of grow close together in a natural setting, and that makes it a very social plant. And that's something that we recognize if uh, plants are in pots and then we put them out into the ground, we immediately see that there's some kind of a completion of the circuits, a completion of the electricity, a completion of the communication between the plants so that then they can help each other out. Um, so, you know, that's definitely a part of the cannabinoid profile as well is how happy is your plant? If your plant is incredibly happy, then it's going to be able to show its full capabilities for the medicine and the terpenes that it puts out. And it's also why we, we really, you know, um, we, we really condone having your plants in the earth and not in pots above the ground. And that's part of our pure certification, part of the farms that we work with and stuff. Everyone is building, you know, beds connected to the earth and it's better for water, water retention. You in Australia, you know, you guys have a, you know, big, huge water problem, you know, a lot of times in the year and, you know, you know, learning about those techniques is going to be extremely important for you all too. Yeah. So I've got a whole bunch of questions related to that, but I just want to jump back to something you referenced a moment ago where you said you wonder what the soil slash your farm will be like in 15 years from now. Something I wanted to ask you specifically was, do you know if the concept of probiotic runoff exists, so to speak? Like, let's just say, you know, your beds are just pumping it out for the next 15 years. Do you think at some point you reach saturation and the microbes then start to leach off to elsewhere and you're kind of biomediating elsewhere or do you think it's going to be quite localized? Well, I, I'm I'm gonna I'll will reference Paul's statements on this, and I mean, and and, and his um, studies is his um, is that there was cow farms above the um, oyster fields out in in Olympia, and the oyster fields and oyster farmers in the water were you know losing their 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 crop and not being able their the oysters weren't growing and they were losing their crop and they're oh my god what's happening we're getting poisoned by cows. And so what they did is they inoculated bales of hay with um, oyster mushrooms and they built channels for the runoff. So the water, when the rain came in, when, when extra groundwaters came, um, the, the groundwater could filter through the bales of hay, which in, in, in the end did save 
the oyster fields. And that just goes to prove, and, and we talk about this a lot in, in, with um, land um, formation when people are doing earthworks on their property is to build um, burlap balls and, and inoculate it with um, with um, biology because we, we know that it, you do affect the area around you through biology. So having really dedicated beds or swales around your property that have really live mycology or biology in your soils, it, it does affect your, your neighbors and, and it does affect your water and, and you have to be really careful about, um, you know, uh, you know, building your property properly so it does affect your neighbors in a positive way. And, I, did and, I answer that properly? And if there is going to be runoff, you know, with your beneficials or your microbiology in your beds, then if it's on your land, that's nothing but, you know, awesome. As far as like reaching like ultimate peak of microbiology, microbiology is just constantly eating and colonizing and dying and eating and colonizing and dying. It's just part of what it does. It changes seasonally. It'll change on a hot day. You know, if we're having blazing hot days, then all of that beautiful microbiology that might be in the first inch of the soil is going to go down quite deep. So not only does it ebb and flow in numbers, but it also ebbs and flows in, in depth and also how wide it is. So we really encourage people that you may start with one garden bed, but the view is to see a beautiful, intelligent microbiology biome that you know expands out from your garden and then it goes out to your property and then if it attaches onto your neighbor's property then all you're doing is creating a beautiful safe haven for a lot of microbiology that's dying in the world today with all of the different toxins so if microbiology can have beautiful islands of health and well-being you know in people's farms or even in a garden a bed or or in a large farm then it is a positive impact for the whole world and and the beds are never done so we're always adding to them like kelly said i mean in, in 15 years we'll have to add to our beds 15 times at least <laughs> yeah so i know that you guys are big advocates of the use of imo and as we just heard microbes in general however i was wondering you know obviously you've never said it but are you against kind of bringing in external microbes you know or are you okay with that but you just prefer to use indigenous ones and i guess the most uh, notable example of this would be mammoth pea for example where do you sit on that um well i mean we do we have our own products uh that have uh, a different array of bacteria as well as endomycorrhiza fungi um as well as different glomus species um, we feel like if you can introduce something that's really beneficial and it's going to take, then that's absolutely fantastic. It's really no different than adding probiotics to your to your body. You know, if you add um, different types of probiotics, you know, the lactobacillus or the bacilluses, then that's just going to inoculate your body. It may only inoculate your body for 72 hours, and then you have to re-inoculate it because it's going to stay in the upper respiratory tract. But some of these soil microbiology that we introduce to our body, which we know as human beings we're completely deficient in, which is hence so many health issues on the planet today, IBS and colitis, and I could go on and on, leaky gut syndrome and all of these things, even, even clear thinking brain capabilities, you know, all really are based in microbiology. So in the same way that maybe we're going to be deficient in some type of a really important microbe, 
you know, you can introduce it to your body in the same way that maybe your farm is deficient in microbiology, you can also, you know, introduce it to your farm. But the most important thing is when you introduce it, you can't be introducing it in a way that it's not going to be colonizing. So to really look at what kind of microbiology that you're bringing in to create a beautiful environment so that it will colonize right away is the real goal. So that you're not continually buying this microbiology to inoculate, inoculate, inoculate your soil. It's great to re-inoculate your, your teas, and maybe Josh will talk a little bit about that. Well, um, another thing that we think about when it, when it comes to biology is that our number one question is, what biology and where did it come from? And there's a lot of biology companies out there that are rooted in GMO companies and um, ones that do are are involved in a lot of practices worldwide that we don't agree with. So um, when it comes to even predators, you know, if you're getting predators for your garden, you have to be really careful of, you know, where you get your predators from because some of those companies are involved in really, you know, large-scale, you know, GMO products and, 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 and farms that we don't agree with. So that's a number one question. And some of it's produced on substrate that's GMO. And you have to know what the biology substrate is that it's being colonized on. So those are some of the questions. I mean, mammoth pea, you know, for example, if you, you know, we don't like to, you know, to talk about any in particular companies. A lot of people use that, you know, in, in products. But, you know, if you're shipping liquid around the world and stuff, you know, you think about the container that it's involved in and stuff. And if you can try and even with our products, you know, we try and you know tell people how to make it locally because it's better for the gardening and better for your environment so biology is best being tried to be made in soils you know um and then um, bringing it into teas um you know that's um where where we have our products and stuff like that our products um, represent herbs and an herbal medicine, which is, is, is certified organic herbs with a certified organic um, bacteria count. And when we make a, or a bacteria colony and when we make teas out of it, um, the herbs just go through the tea. And when they, you water the beds, the herbs go onto the top of the soil. So you can colonize them in the tea and then you can, they, they continue to colonize when they're in the soil. And, and we're talking a lot about our products, but more importantly, we teach people to not use products at all. So, you know, all of our products have every single recipe right. on it. We really, in, we really encourage people to grow this herbal biomass themselves. Then it becomes closed loop. You also can inoculate and grow out all of your own species of different types of inoculants, whether that's a fungi or a bacteria. Um, you know, we utilize a tremendous amount of lactic acid bacteria cultures here, as well as different types of soil bacteria to help break down the raw plant mass. So we grow a tremendous amount of herbal biomass on our property here that then gets chopped up and broken down into a tea container. And then you add all of that microbiology so that it eats it up at a very rapid rate. And then you aerate it. So that's a really an anaerobic um, beginning stages of that because those anaerobes are incredibly, you know, ferocious and they eat through things at a very rapid rate. 
and they're digesters. So when you have that in an anaerobic and then you switch your anaerobic fermented teas into an aerobic compound by adding, you know, air to it, then that gets all of your anaerobes away and then it's ready to drench. And then it will be fully full of all of the the great microbiology that you're looking for that's going to continue to break down that material in your soils. So a question kind of relating to the teas that I wanted to ask you is, do you see any downside to artificially extending the life of your tea? So for example, maybe, you know, you've had it brewing for a few days and you haven't used it all. So you just throw a bit of extra carbohydrate sauce in there or something along those lines. Do you think that that's like, you know, detrimental? Would you uh, sorry avoid doing that or how do you feel about that? I mean, it's not going to be the best way to build the colony of your tea. I mean, you know, if the the purpose of of having a tea to begin with is to is to build mycology, essentially, and not mycology, but uh, microbiology. You know, I mean, you start with one thing and you add a little bit of molasses or something to it, organic or or not, and we can get into that whether to use organic uh, to use organic molasses or not, but. You use the aeration to charge up the tea, and when you charge up the tea, um, you know you're building the co- the colony, and that's the point of it. So if you if you just extend that, you're just losing the colony that you built because they're not they don't wait around. They're they're just live and die, you know, fast organisms. So they've if they've eaten up a lot of the nutrients that you've already put in there, and then you add more inoculants in there, then it's not going to be the same colonies that have eaten up the the initial foods or nutrients that you've put in there it's going to be sort of a different colony that takes over and it's really interesting because colonies can change in a tea brew from hour to hour you know they can change depending on how warm the weather is how much humidity is in there or you know depending on what you put in there so it's a really we we really don't look at our teas any different than you would like a stomach or a digestive tract we want to make sure to put everything in there and then give it the ability to be able to digest it fully with all beneficial microbiology. And we really don't separate it between the human digestive tract we, we just, and, and a tea brew. As far as, it, yeah, the teas, we just do it a little differently. I mean, we do it kind of like the art of fermentation on one side and then we activate it on the other. And, and that's different than a lot of people. So I think a lot of our listeners will probably kill me if I don't ask. How long do you brew your teas for generally? And do you use uh, like a kind of a rule of thumb to see when they're ready? Like, you know, a lot of people will say when there's a nice healthy froth on top. But then, you know, you'll have other people who will say that's not always indicative that it's done, things like that. Like, where do you sit on that? Well, most importantly, you know, the very end, I could go through the beginning of it. But the very end is taste it, you know. Really, if you're utilizing things in your tea that you know are good for the soil and good for the microbiology, you know, of course, you can get a pH meter. Of course, you can look at the bubbles. You can smell it. But when you taste your tea, it's totally inert. It has zero flavor at all. It's crazy. You could put a tremendous amount of of, of biomass in there, chop up all of your plants, and in the anaerobic part of it, which usually is between five and seven days, it can go up to 10 days during really cold cycles. If it's more warm, then it's going to be faster to five days. Um, that's your anaerobic brew. And then when you take that anaerobic brew and then you put it into another container, you know, by straining out all of the biomass and the herbs and everything, you put it into another container and you aerate it, it should have zero smell. 
and the taste of it should be totally inert. And for us, that's saying it's done. And then that gives a really beautiful color to the tea and everything. And, and our aeration usually is between 24 and 72 hours, depending, well, 12, actually 12 and 72 hours, depending on, you know, what cycle our plants are in. I mean, the general rule of thumb, you know, is 12 to 24 hours tops. I mean, that's, but you know, you're, then you're going on just, you know, compost tea knowledge, just, you know, basic compost tea knowledge, you know, which is a certain, you know, a, a third of a tablespoon or a, of a pound, you know, per gallon or, and then you, and you bubble it overnight, you know, or 12 to 24 hours. If you do it longer than that, you lose your colony. But there's a lot of reasons why, you know, even just steeping it overnight makes a lot of sense. So you can take like herbs, like dried herbs and some compost tea, and you can just steep it overnight and then just drench it onto your soil. And then that's really good for your soil microbes. So there's really a lot of different ways to make teas. Um, and I think that you have to really think about, you know, what your goal is and are you indoor, are you soilless? Do you have, um, you know, outdoors? So I mean, there really is a lot of questions on how you're growing, on how you're going to tag you. There's not just one way to do a tea from our perspective. And we really like to, you know, us personally, just like Josh said, there's a lot of different ways to make teas. But we really like to have control over, you know, what's in our tea brewers, which is the reason why we work with herbal biomass and our inoculants. We're not really working with compost because, you know, the variety of differentiation of microbiology in there is so huge. It's so vast. So we really like to have control over what's in our tea brews so that we know what's going to be the end product, that we're not going to have anything anaerobic in there, we're not going to have anything, I mean, unless it's a facultative anaerobe, and then that's really awesome. But, you know, nothing that would be detrimental to the root system. So we really like to have control over what is in our tea brews, and we pick and choose particular inoculants that we make here on our own property to, to make that happen. Yeah, wow, you just read my mind because I was going to ask you about facultative anaerobes. I was going to say, I was talking to Mr. Bob Hemphill and he's saying he's a big fan of adding Bokashi or, you know, EM4, IMO4, whatever you're making it with. Do you do you feel the same way? Like, do you like adding Bokashi, like where you kind of incorporate that, you know, the anaerobic with the aerobic or do you prefer, as you referenced a moment ago, to have, you know, like your ferment stage and then your activation stage? Well, I think with um, with Bokashi and, and different things like that, you have to be careful because it's it's acidic in, in nature. So um, really using less of it is using more. And we do like Bokashi because we like lactic acid bacteria because it's, uh, you know, the main, you know, fermenting microbe and sauerkraut and most of the foods that we eat. So we do like propagating lactic acid bacteria on our property. And we usually do that through making teas. Um, as far as, you know, our soils go in our beds, um, we, we treat them like a compost pile. So we're, we're kind of always adding stuff and, and it creates like a healthy gut for the plants. And we, you know, we're slowly adding to it all the time. So our IMOs are basically attracted to our beds and we don't feel we need to go collect IMOs, even though we'll bring handfuls of dirt from different environments that we think are really healthy. And maybe we'll propagate those through teas and drench them onto our beds to to spread the microbes. But 
we we generally use mulch and biomass and and covering our beds to attract the indigenous microbes to our beds and we have less and less compost piles and more and more just our beds or our compost and yeah to answer your question the facultative microbes are just totally imperative for the beginning stages of the fermentation those facultative microbes are the ones that are just so hardcore and quick digesters and they can make you know the difference between a pretty pathogenic tea and a totally beneficial tea and the and facultative means that they can can propagate in an anaerobic condition or an aerobic condition so you know we're attracted in our life we're attracted to microbes that we that to us that's adaptogenic they they adapt they're able to to live and propagate in in an anaerobic situation, and then when you go to what we say activate the the tea, then they change with that, and we we like having those kind of microbes that can that can adapt, and we want to propagate that and put those that into our soils because you know the environment is ever changing, our bodies are ever changing, and we just want a really healthy um, you know biome around us. Of course. So I noticed on a few different Instagram posts, sometimes people will ask you maybe like what you're using in a specific picture in relation to say a top dress or like something along those lines. And the general answer you kind of give is like, oh, you know, like we're just using stuff that's around the place. Would you try to maintain that philosophy everywhere you go? Or is that more so applicable just because, you know, like obviously on your farm, you've got access to a lot of this stuff. So you are able to just kind of use what's around, but maybe somewhere else. Like, I guess what the question is, is do you think that there's stuff people can use no matter where they are? Or do you think you guys are a little bit lucky and that you do have stuff laying around, so to speak? Absolutely. It's totally important that people utilize what they have around their own environment because that own and whatever they have in their own environment is is intelligent to that area, you know, to utilize plants that are growing really well and that are super healthy. Um, we also, you know, with our pure certification, we have to have, you know, people are looking for at least, at least six closed loops and creating your own nutrients and growing your own biomass is a really big part of that loop. And that's ever changing depending on where you are. You know, if you're in Arizona, you're going to be utilizing a tremendous amount of prickly pear and cactus and different types of sagebrush. And it's incredible the nutrients that are available in those in those plants and, and also the cyanobacteria that's on the outside of those leaves are are there for a reason. They're there to keep the plant healthy during its life, but they're also there to help digest it in in the time of its death or when the leaves drop to the ground. So when you're collecting biomass in your area, you're also collecting microbiology on the leaf structure as well. So, you know, your teas should be absolutely as intelligent as they possibly can be. And that's going to come from your own property. So we've, we, we, we definitely have chosen the area that we live in for a reason because it is rich in biomass and we do really resonate with this area. So that part is true. We are really lucky where we live. But um, like Kelly said, and we, we have traveled the world to a lot of different places. We've worked on a lot of, um, you know, international projects and inter- disaster projects. And we went to Jamaica for a month this year and, and worked with the, the Rasta village there. And we worked with, with um, you know, making um, biomass gardens um, everywhere that we've gone in each country that we've gone to. So we, we don't think that it's, it's something that just we do on our property. We, we say it's absolutely imperative for people to do it everywhere they are. And every time we go somewhere, we really, um, you know, really 
look to the area as soon as we get there and say, oh, what can we use and what can we use there? So yeah, I, I think that you can um, get really creative. And that's the thing about our peer certification as well. And all of the farmers that that we that are are part of that movement and that regenerative movement of cannabis is that you know it's part it's part of connecting with your environment and that's the way that you can really really um, ensure that you're you're getting clean inputs into your farm and we haven't talked about that yet but having clean inputs onto your farm is absolutely imperative and moving forward in the new legalization paradigm of cannabis um we have to be re- extremely careful about the products that we bring into our property and i think that's been a big part of this regenerative cannabis uh movement is is people that's why people have have started to grow more diversity on their property i mean part of being pure certified is you can't just have a cannabis farm you have to grow other other biomass like like kelly was saying and 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 that's part of connecting with your land so trees and bushes and food grass and and even you know local livestock and stuff are a crucial part of building life on your farm even if you have an indoor operation you can still use you know the edges of you know the land around it to to make um, you know, mass for your gardens. And and part of being regenerative is understanding the botany that grows around your region and your area. And and a lot of people that call something maybe a noxious weed that's come in from an outside source, those noxious weeds are there for a reason. It's because they have found a home that is going to be able to help them express, you know, their true health and well-being. And those can be utilized so much. And then that helps down the noxious weeds in your area, but then you're also utilizing them in your teas. And we suggest to make sure to utilize those noxious weeds, you know, before they seed so that you're not continuing, you know, the propagation of them. But if it's something that you have on your property, of course, use it. You know, in Oregon and in Northern California, they have a tremendous amount of, of a Himalayan blackberry and an alpine blackberry. It grows there like crazy. But when you start looking at all of the nutritive capabilities that this plant has when you chop it up or you put it in a tea, the amount of growth hormones that are in it, then you have an understanding of why it's so noxious because it has such incredible capability to grow so fast in a really small space. So we really encourage people to look around and understand the plant life that's around your area and then start picking and choosing what you want to propagate and also what you want to put into your teas or into your compost or chip up or put on the top as a mulch. You know, you could go on and on. So i got a question where it's kind of like the devil's in the details, but I guess what I'm wondering is, would you want to say not use something which is kind of external but it would have been a waste anyway. So what I'm getting at is I love to go down to my local coffee store and grab the coffee grinds. You know, it's just my plants love it when I top dress it with them. But I understand it it brings with it a myriad of questions, you know, like where's the beans? Is it GMO? Like, you know, all that type of stuff that comes along with it. For those reasons, is it just something you would look to avoid or are you okay with something like that where broadly speaking, you are kind of using what would have otherwise been wasted? Well, I mean, we're living in a a world of, of international products and in an international world of of food and if there's something that you feel like wow you know this would be really good for my farm definitely find out what the source is go all the way down with it but if you have an intuition that those coffee grounds 
are going to be great for your farm and you feel like it would be really helpful, then it's good to take in a small amount of whatever said thing that you're bringing into your property and utilize it in a small area. Give like a trial of two to three weeks or something like that. Have a look at it and then say, yeah, my intuition is right. Because I believe with science and 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 all of these tests and trials that we do involving science, it's starting to take away, you know, our basic innate understanding of intuition. And gardening is such an intuitive thing. You know, humans are of the earth. Plants are of the earth. Of course, we communicate with each other. Of course, we're having conversations on another level. And we really encourage people to have those conversations with your land and your soil and the plants around you and, and also the inputs that you're going to be able to bring in. It's it's a really uh, an individual matter. But also, whatever inputs that you're bringing in, make sure that you feel really good about it and that your intuition is right and it is sound to create an, a good ultimate immune response in wherever you're putting it. And for me, it brings up, you know, another question is, number one, where are you in the world? And of course, we always, you know, we always talk about being crafty and, and you know, you, we have to be resourceful and use, you know, what's in our area. And depending on where you live in the world and with cannabis especially, it, it is a dynamic accumulator. It accumulates stuff out of the soil. So depending on what level of scrutiny you have, I mean, there's some farms that can't use, you know, municipality um, compost like from different cities because of different sprays that might be used, you know, on the roadside. If they used that compost thinking, oh, geez, you know, the, our city produces compost and I just want to use compost from my city. It just only makes all the sense in the world. Like on a human level, yeah, it does make sense. But if on on an actual reality of testing, you could potentially fail tests with cannabis by using bad inputs. So, yeah, I mean, you have to be really pretty mindful in certain places. In other places, you know, it, it only makes sense to use what's around you. And also to add to what, you know, Josh was just saying is that there's a tremendous amount, you know, in North America right now and also in other parts of the world of the use of glyphosate. And glyphosate is not something that's even being tested because Department of Ag's all over the world and these really large multinational, multi-international corporations feel like glyphosate is totally healthy and that, you know, we should be able to drink it. So why is it a problem? But we're finding it more and more along the roadsides. We're finding it everywhere. And then prolonged use in your soil beds is going to kill your microbiology. It is an herbicide and an herbicide, you know, kills all different types of life. microbiology and it has a huge long life you know the half life that they're saying now you know they've already negated at least 10 times over so the truth is is that we don't really know how long those half-lifes are of these horrible chemicals and over prolonged use in your gardens you're going to be killing all of your microbiology which is going against everything that you began by being able to bring in those inputs if so you, if you it's have, a really it's a difficult question yeah if you have an indoor garden, you may not have a, 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 a soil that's as vigorous as an outdoor garden. In an outdoor garden, you have the ability to create a ton of biomass and a ton of microbiology. And if, you're, if your positive microbiology outweighs 
the little bit of toxins that you might be getting from an inorganic coffee thing that, that it would probably might it might remediate it but if you get anything out of balance you could throw that off and kill the microbiology like what kelly's saying and we're not really believing that you know nature and microbiology um you know are not very good at remediating horrible toxins on the planet any better than we're able to remediate those toxins when we ingest it and we always go back to human health soil health plant health it's just all the same so whenever there's information out there in the science world and you're looking up a particular um product or something or or some kind of an input look at all of the human health that it has attached to it as well you know take the time to google all of that information and go deeper affects pollinators and it affects pollinators or how it affects our own immune response yeah okay that's very interesting so i want to know then if i so for example here in australia glyphosate is incredibly widely used there's almost no concern about it at least in the sense there ways in the states which is a little alarming but essentially, if I was to buy a new property and move on there, I would, you know, bet my left leg that it's been sprayed down with glyphosate a lot. So, you know, obviously, you know, the details would give the specifics of this situation. But if you had to give a rule of thumb, how long would you think it would take for me to kind of bioremediate that uh, kind of land I bought? And more importantly, would you be okay with, say, consuming the first crop produced on that land? Or would you want to do some work first before you were feeling comfortable about that? I would I would start um, to sort of begin the the question that the, where you started at the end there was I would definitely start bioremediation with plant matter that wasn't vegetables that I would be eating um, as far as a time period of how long that would take to remediate it I mean possibly your whole lives and and your grandchildren's lives that's something that we just don't know because the information that we're getting is so one-sided because it's all being put out by the makers of this particular product. So they've got, you know, a real uh, investment to make sure that the scientific research goes along the way that they would like it to go along. But we know for sure that heavily laden glyphosate areas, you just simply put a pea in there or a bean, it won't grow. They don't, you know, those are kind of plants that don't do very well yeah, with herbicide. You, before you laden. buy the property, go try and plant peas on it, because peas are <laughs> one of the they're, they're they're one of the most susceptible things to herbicides. So you just be like, you know what? I just can I plant a row of peas here right now and come back a week later, and if they've sprouted, then you've got something you can work with. But if they don't don't sprout and there's no reason for it you might seriously consider it. And we and we totally tell people to test the soil for sure. If you're going to buy a piece of land. You can test it. And, and, and with glyphosate, like I know, I, I'm not sure exactly about soil tests in Australia, but um, there'll be soil tests that have, you know, 30 different, you know, pesticides and herbicides that they test for. But glyphosate will not be one of them. You have for to the have same reason test. that you just said, because, you know, they think, oh, you know, you can dump, you know, glyphosate in your Cheetos in the morning and it's totally fine. Um, but um, so you you really have to be, you know, very mindful of what you're using and and get a soil test. 
So, the f- well, kind of in related to all of this stuff, well, the first thing I'll add is that I think, unfortunately, in Australia, soil tests are quite cost prohibitive. Like, I think um, to get a fairly basic one, you're probably looking at around $150 to $200, which I think that's some tests in the States are like that expensive, but it certainly seems very expensive here, especially considering, you know, we're in like an illegal market. But, um, something I did wanted to ask you guys about was just the interesting range of soil additives you have in that, <coughs> excuse me, the cocoa, that's the one which, the cocoa, sorry, um, that's the one which grabs my interest the most, you know, because it's like, you see alfalfa, you see you see a lot of stuff being used by a lot of people, and I think that you guys use all of that stuff in a really interesting way, but the cocoa, the cocoa was the one which really grabbed my interest because you, you just, you don't see it outside of your products. So, how did you come up with that, and what was kind of the rationale behind it? Well, the rationale is when you look at a plant and you see a plant through its whole cycle, it starts out as a sprout. First of all, it starts as a seed and the seed has all the vast nutrients that are available. It almost becomes like a a micro superfood, a seed does, because it contains everything that that plant should contain in it. And then once it grows out, then it starts to have other different kinds of nutrients, like say nitrogen and calcium. And then as the plant starts growing out even more, it's uptaking different minerals and different nutrients from the soil throughout its entire life cycle. And we know that for cannabis, you know, we add a lot of nitrogen at the beginning and then we move to their phosphorus and uh, potassium and phosphorus and that sort of thing. Well, plants are no different in in the wild. So they're uptaking, you know, basic nutrients at the beginning. And then when they turn into a seed form like the cacao, then it starts to become a very nutrient dense plant. product or, or, you know, in this case, it was a product, but, you know, a nutrient dense part of the plant, a cacao uh, mines a tremendous amount of magnesium and manganese and copper out of the soil. And and and, and a million other, you know, and a million other things. So we utilize the raw cacao because when you test raw cacao, it has a tremendous amount of nutrients that helps a plant finish because it's the finishing part of the cacao tree. It's no different than say, you know, you're utilizing maybe sesame seeds are going to contain a lot more finishing compounds and minerals and nutrients in it than the first sprout of that particular sesame. And that's why we use spirulina in our radiant green in the, in the vegetative one, because, you know, nothing's more nutritive than one celled organisms and algae. So you know, the raw cacao has a wide variety of trace minerals and, and nutrients and vitamins at the very end. And this, and also the wild yam is one that you did. Did you want us to talk about more of, of the ingredients? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to hear more about it. Especially what I wanted to hear was um, what organic ingredients you look to for phosphorus, because phosphorus is one of those ones where it's a little less common to come by. Hmm. Phosphorus can definitely be mined up in a plant. There's lots of different plants that are going to contain phosphorus. And like I was saying before, it's going to be the ending part of the plant that's going to have the most phosphorus. So tubers, wild yam has, you know, uh, phosphorus as well as like yams that you eat out of the ground. Potatoes have a lot of phosphorus. In our products, we utilize burdock root. And the reason why we utilize burdock root is just 5,000 years of ancient Chinese history, you know, of, of, of healing of the body. 
And like I had said before, we always look at the healing of the body, the same as healing of the plant. And burdock has so many healing modalities because of the tremendous amount of nutrients in it. And one of the nutrients in there that's so rich is phosphorus. So rather than getting mined phosphorus or phosphorus that really leaches out into the soil, you know, you can add rock phosphate and you're going to lose about 80% of that rock phosphate. Whereas if you feed phosphorus rich plants, tubers, seeds, finishing parts of the plant, and you feed it to the microbiology, then it becomes immediately available to the plant. And phosphorus is one of those ones that, you know, can be found, like I said, in the finishing parts. And also a big, a big part of our, um, you know, practices that we, that we promote is, is having a, you know, a a type of soil that has a lot of compost in it, that's composting and and living and the, the breakdown of, of, of leaf mold, leaf matter and, and different stuff like that produces phosphorus in the soil so we really believe that you know having an active soil that's being that's breaking down is producing enough phosphorus we don't actually we never use more phosphorus ever on our property than what's produced just by our soils and these plants and and the seeds and the the roots that we use so and turkey rhubarb was another one in there for the last 20 years we've been growing you know in a way that we don't utilize any of those bat guano phosphoruses and it's like this thing which is rock phosphate anyway yeah actually it's not in the bat guano (laughs) so just having a really active soil and then using roots and seeds which is the ending product of the plant um provides the phosphorus potassium um, you know, manganese and, and all that stuff that we need and Josh to is, create the flower. Josh has touched on something that we feel is like incredibly important is the use of trees, the use of tree leaves, trees, the ultimate miners. They send down their roots as tall as they are. You know, they're mining all kinds of things in the soil and then they bring them up into their leaves and then they drop their leaves. And I'm talking about deciduous trees in this particular instance. Not eucalyptus, of course. Don't use any eucalyptus, anything. And so they they take all of the nutrients up into the tree and then they drop all of those and then the cycle continues again. So utilizing tree leaves, um, you know, contain an incredible amount of minerals and phosphorus is definitely one and is that something when you say the tree leaves you're referring to like a leaf mold type of thing or just a direct top dressing type of a situation yeah you can direct top dress um, because it's going to turn into leaf mold immediately anyway we we now look at our beds like these living beings like i we had opened up the conversation to begin with you know so we're always layering things on top of our beds making sure that we're not layering anything that would turn it hot. You know, we don't want necessarily hot composting to be happening in the beds, but we certainly want cold composting to be happening in the beds. And the beautiful thing about nature is that, especially when you're in an area that has seasons, everything is available all at the right time. And then when the seasons come, it, 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 it provides the nutrients that your gardens need at that time. You know, all of the flowers start coming out and the seeds and the tubers start coming out right at the same time that your plants are needing phosphorus, that your tomatoes are needing phosphorus to produce juicy tomatoes. There's some kind of a, a beauty in the cycles of nature. And if we just pay attention, then it's all there for us. I mean, you know 
permaculture did come out of Tasmania in so many ways and in Australia and there's there's plenty of examples you know across the you know across the country there and the and the continent that that show as is really similar to what we're talking about yeah definitely definitely there's a a lot of really good gardeners shout out to Steve Solomon in uh, Tasmania <laughs> um so yeah, he's a big guru. Uh, so something I wanted to ask you is I had noticed that over, say, the past three or four years, there had been this kind of unspoken trend within the no-till scene, so to speak, that there'd been a, there'd been a move away from animal products and especially, you know, in terms of like uh, amendments. And so the question which I was wondering is, do you think that it's the case that we've just found better replacements or it's more a case that there's also an underlying objection to, you know, like the raising and the slaughtering? Um, well, all of it. So to answer that question, I, I always say to people, okay, so what does it look like on a hot summer day when you throw a steak out on the lawn that's <laughs> raw and then you leave it there for a week or if you throw an apple out on the lawn and then you leave it there for a week, what kind of different bacteria and fungi are going to overtake that to be able to digest it down and basically turn it into soil? The meat is going to have incredibly aggressive anaerobic fungi and, and bacteria bugs and worms and maggots and, you <laughs> yeah know, i mean it, it could gonna, be fun to watch it <laughs> it's gonna draw a tremendous amount of pathogens in order for it to become beneficial whereas the apple that's di you know being digested on the lawn there in the hot summer day is gonna just start drawing all of these beautiful things that turn white and you could, you know, things meaning microbiology, it's great fungi and, and different bacteria. And you could almost take that rotting apple and, you know, put it right into your soil. You know, I don't necessarily suggest this, but then that would be come, you know, a beneficial colony. You really couldn't take the steak and put it into there at all. So we haven't used animal products ever. It's just not we've been growing for almost three decades and and we haven't utilized any animal products other than manure that's you know from our own farm here, you know that's all grass fed, no grain um, because we feel like the pathogens that break down that animal matter is just not something that we want to bring into our gardens, and nor do we like well, to support something that is unkind or harmful to the planet. Yeah, and through soil testing, I mean, you, when you're doing no-till, you're doing something that's that's continuous, you know, where you're using the same soil for a long time, you know, you do have to be mindful of what you put in there. And just like Kelly said, you know, certain animal products just don't have the same kind of longevity that you're going for. And that's why the forest is so beautiful because, you know, it really shows the power of, of plant medicine and and how well it can do and also you know organic farmers here in in north america to be certified organic on a vegetable farm they use a tremendous amount of blood and bone meal like a tremendous amount and when you test that blood and bone meal the glyphosate levels are really high because the cows are eating the grain that's glyphosate laden and also they're eating the grass that's glyphosate laden and that's bringing all of that into so you're not only bringing possible pathogenic nutrients into your property but you're also bringing a tremendous amount of glyphosate and who knows what else so you know 
really supporting the slaughterhouses is not something that we feel like we want to touch at all. We don't want to support those slaughterhouses, and we really don't want to support the microbiology that it takes to break down those slaughterhouses. We're also really careful with plants like neem and karanja and different, you know, seed meals that haven't also um, lasted very well in soil. That's interesting. So you guys are not big fans of neem? Well, I mean, you know, there's neat, the neem tree is phenomenal. And so, of course, you know, we love the neem tree and, you know, to take neem, you know, there's neem teas and neem medicine is, is a good thing. It's just also, you know, it's 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 not something that promotes, you know, bi- microbiology in the soil. And um, it's a volatile oil. So, you know, anything that has any plants that have large aromatics you have to be really careful about what those aromatics are. You know, if you're going to break down a ton of geranium, you know, you might really want to think of putting a ton of geranium into your soils because it contains high geranol. And geranol is great to get rid of pests and, you know, pathogens possibly on the leaf source or maybe in the soil. But if you're utilizing it over a long period of time, then your beneficials aren't going to be like, yay, this is an awesome soil to be in because there's just such a vast amount of volatile oils. So we really stay away from, you know, eucalyptus or black walnut or even neem in large amounts or karanja or any of these like super volatile oil plants. It's not a way that we want to deal with the pathogens that, that those are trying to kill. So that we're, we'll use predators for that instead. So we, we don't need to top dress with neem and those kind of things because we know that the neem is going to kill other microbiology because we work with, you know, a lot of people that, you know, do soil testing all the time. And, and, and we've, that, we, they've shown that, you know. And so that's not a thing that we use. And, and we've always felt like that kind of weary about it. Okay. And so, in general, do you veer more towards wanting to have, say, a bacterial-dominant soil, a fungal-dominant soil, or just a kind of a one-to-one type of ratio? Always a blend. Always a blend. You definitely want to have your bacteria is just going to last in there for a short time. So it's awesome that your bacteria, that your teas are super bacteria-rich and that your soils are really fungi-rich so that the bacteria is going to stay in there long enough just to break down that green material, the leaf material, light material, and then be able to give it to the plant. But, you know, the prolonged breakdown of the soil is definitely, you know, our fungi friends. It's, it's almost easy to, to get the bacteria. So it's not, you know, it's, it's we, we, with Hugo culture and with, you know, carbon sequestration and carbon farming is is really to attract fungi so we're we're really kind of doing all we can to get more fungi and in, into our soils because through a lot of soil testing um you know you'd find that there's lower fungal mass and there is um, bacterial you know mass so we you know that's why we're adding biomass so much to our soils is the the fungi really interact with the roots and and to directly feed the plant and and you're feeding a lot of soil fungi by feeding it bacteria. So there's a whole lot of really awesome fungi that eats bacteria directly that have, you know, this beautiful relationship with the top layer is totally bacteria rich and then as you go down lower you've got more fungi. So that's why adding more, you know, bacteria rich compounds throughout the time to make sort of a com- cold composting in your 
in your soil beds is a great idea because then in time that bacteria top layer is going to turn into a fungi rich lower layer. Yeah, and you, I mean you can add anything hard and you're going to get more carbon, more sticks, you know, a little stick, maybe stalks from your previous harvest. You could work into the top part of your soil. Um, not or or even it, but... adding for a you know pre-made soil of people that have indoor adding sawdust to your to your soil is great as well you know when you're having a pre-mixed soil or some deciduous wood chips trees, yeah you know, deciduous so... because then you're not dealing with the acidity but it but if it's really old then the acidity you know goes away as well that's a whole other conversation <laughs> there's so, so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, something which kind of I think is an overall topic of this whole kind of thread is, and I've seen you reference it on a few different YouTube videos, is kind of this conundrum of organic certification, organic labels, you know, just that the whole the whole I think it's like a, it's like a minefield these days. So with that being said, are you happy to use something which is not strictly organic so long as you're confident it's kind of beneficial in some way or another? Yeah, absolutely. Depends. There's a lot of people and a lot of farmers out there in the world that don't want to have anything to do with a certification, even if they're an alfalfa farmer, because they don't feel like their regenerative practices are representative of that certification. And unfortunately, it's like there's not many certifications. And that's the reason like why we came up with the peer certification is because we just felt really sort of angry, really upset with what the commonality of what people saw as organic. And if it had that label on it, then, oh, that's good enough for me. But when you start reading into it, you know, 30% of your inputs can be non-organic. And then there's a whole list of pesticides you can add and a whole list of herbicides and fun all different kinds of things that are underneath that. And like you said, yeah, it started out like in, in the U.S. with the Oregon tilth, and they did a really good job, but now they can't utilize that term organic unless it's along with the USDA organic or the Canadian organic standards and certifications. So Yeah, I, I say it depends because it's kind of a know-your-farmer situation. I mean, if you find yourself in the countryside and, and you've got in your area someone who's been farming, you know, the certain way their whole time and they just didn't want to go bother going through and buying the certification and getting that kind of, um, you know, validation, then, I mean, we would say use that because that farmer is probably just more radical to keep it natural than someone who's part of the system. It's almost like when you're part of the system, it's, you have to question it more. So it's kind of really knowing your source, you know, of, of where it's coming from. And now there's been this incredible movement of power in the pure certification because pure farmers are now joining together and going out onto farmers plots and saying, hey, we'll buy all of your hay or your straw, every single bit of it, if you don't spray it and you add these things to it and you let all of the weeds grow. So now the farmer is getting a higher price from pure farmers. And that's just like sacred commerce that creates knowing your source you're actually creating knowing your and source empowers your alfalfa farmer and empowers your field farmer who may not have had a reason to care that person might have just been like oh you know what the farmers the, the, these bigger companies are just they just pay me and then i just do it and they give me seed and i don't have to think about it but you might have farmers that you know if they were if they had a community of people that were like listen we value you not using any chemicals on your products or on your field you know we'll pay this specific price then then farmers now have an incentive to to 
to grow, you know, their, 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 their alfalfa in a good way. And that's why the pure farmers um, are making an impact, not just on their farm, but, but even way farther. And we encourage the listeners to look up dempurefarms.com, which is a website that we've created, which highlights um, closed, the closed loop practices that we talk about and the farms that, that do those practices and shows those farms in, in the different states. So when you say, is it just us on our farm? No, you can see, you know, close to 80 different examples of other people doing it in, in different places in the world. Um, there's mostly in the U S and Canada at this moment. But. And, and this certification, you know, that we're talking about is a movement. It's an activist movement. It's not something you can even buy. It doesn't cost anything. It's free. And it's in its community run in that we don't decide the final, you know, if somebody is looking to be pure certified, we set the standards and we and we sort of set it out. But it becomes a community brain and a mind so that, say, somebody in Humboldt is wanting to be certified. Well, all of the pure farmers in Humboldt are the ones that go to that farm and make a decision on whether it is matching their farm and whether they feel like it's the same standard as their farm. And in that, it creates community and more of a conversation so that we can all get better. And that goes into your conversation about sourcing, just right back at it. If, if there's more people trying to source the same thing, then we know exactly where we're getting it from and we know exactly what it contains. And, and you know, I'll just, I'll just make the point that, you know, we, we, we love ganja and when we smoke it, we, we feel like in harmony with nature and we have that connection of naturalness and 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 to be a naturalist and so we we really it is an activist movement to to just make the impact as widespread as possible and that that that's really what this is and it, it is really exciting and it's nice to have something exciting in a time when you know there's a lot of doom and gloom yeah of course and so I think the thing which you touched on and which appeals to me the most about the pure certification is that, yeah, there's there's the kind of uh, community responsibility slash aspect to it all. Do you think that that same kind of philosophy needs to be extended to more parts of the movement? And I guess the thing which jumps to mind to me the most is kind of the activism within, say, the legal sector. You know, Do you think there needs to be that same kind of onus on ourselves to kind of take responsibility for the things we want to see happen in a way? Absolutely. Cannabis is not just a plant. It's a culture. And it doesn't matter where you are on the planet. It's so cool. I mean, so many listeners out there, and I'm sure you would feel the same way. You know, you could go anywhere in the world and you're seeing somebody that's totally different from a totally different place, from a totally different, you know, whatever, a different age group or a different socioeconomic group or or possibly a different race or whatever. But if you have cannabis in in common all of a sudden that they're a dude that's like great you know you're just like all of a sudden friends with that person and i believe that that camaraderie and that family energy and culture of cannabis absolutely needs to be in the forefront having a rightful voice for this plant that has given us so much you know when we ingest it it, it gives us uh, you know, a higher understanding of nature and a, and more of a community mindset. And I think that that community mindset is everything that we need to be able to move forward, both in the political sector and also all the way down to the cultivation sector. And, 
Yeah, and 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 I will and I will say that this this movement has gone, you know, political and and we do have friends and family that are working in in politics and I don't want to say the word politics, but influencing laws and 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 you know, give thanks, give thanks to them and regulations and stuff. And so, and, and it's also just in, in cafes and, and even beyond like, and midwifery is something that's really important to us, you know, and, and there's just a lot of things that see this kind of movement, this pure kind of movement as more of a lifestyle. And that's why regenerative is a word that that's being used a lot by us in the community is because it makes sense to, to use a regenerative lifestyle. Cause we really do need to regenerate, you know, we can't sustain, you know, where we are in this world or in this, in this path, we have to go beyond sustaining and regenerate. And so the pure certification is, it's, it is cannabis and food based, but it, it goes way beyond. It really does. And we're in an international, you know, community now. I mean, it's a perfect example. We're talking to you in Australia as if you're here in our front room and what a wonderful opportunity to be able to reach out to the whole world. And I think that cannabis needs to be seen as, as international now. You know, we all need to join together. We all need to be on the same page. And that's the way that we're going to be able to have the rightful voice, like I was saying before, for the plant. And I believe that, you know, so many investors, we call them outvestors, but just for fun, <laughs> um, so many investors and so many different, you know, corporations out there trying to own it. But nobody brought a seat up for the plant in that conversation or in that conference call. Nobody is having a conversation, you know, if they're in that corporate mindset. And I believe that as we move forward into the rules and the regulations and into our own use and, you know, into the health and well-being of, of introducing our cannabis culture to the whole world, we have an incredible responsibility to have a rightful voice for the plant and that she's always part of our conversations and how we move forward. Yeah, okay. I can definitely agree with all of that. So I had one question, which I was actually struggling to think of how I was going to slide it in, but you guys just gave me the perfect segue when you mentioned that midwifery. I know that you guys have been toying slash, you know, 100% doing like a kind of pregnancy brew for a while. I was interested in that. Like, how did that start? And like, can you just give us a bit more information about it? Um, well, I'm a midwife and I've been in the natural health field, um, naturopathic medicine, herbology, um, Chinese uh, medicine uh, since my early 20s. And... Um, which I is was, just early, you know, mid to early nineties. Yeah. So it's early, been, we've early been 90s. doing this work for a really long time. <laughs> yeah. And, um, well, from our perspective, at least. Yeah. And we're, we're still, still, we're still so youthful. Yeah, you're we're better, still so youthful. Don't worry. Well, the veterans are really around us. We like to They're give amazing. like a lot of respect to the, the veterans. So. Yeah. The, the true. The elders. Yeah. Um, but I, I've always utilized, you know, a beautiful tea blend and, and I've, thought that herbs and steeping and brewing herbs were just a really good way to get immediate results in a human condition. So any maladies that anybody had, you know, whether it was a body wash, which is like a foliar spray, or whether it's like in, you know, drinking it and you're drinking it for your kidneys or whatever different things that, you know, utilizing herbs for that. And pregnancy tea uh, is, is really close to my heart because I feel like 
you know, you can take pregnancy supplements and because it's like mined minerals and it's very difficult for your digestive tract to understand herbs in the same way, you know, like in pills in the form of capsules or something like that, you know, like a supplement. Like a whole food capsule wouldn't be the same as a, a whole food, you know, coming out of your garden. So, and then we know if you steep those teas, then it starts to extract the minerals like overnight and you can grow a beautiful, healthy, you know, mama and baby with, with great breast milk after the baby is born just off of herbs. And that's where we took that whole ideology and started putting it into soil. And I had a, an old tea brew blend, you know, I, collect, I grow all of my own herbs and then give them out to all of the ladies that I work with. Um, I had one that was a year old and the new crop was coming up and I just thought, hey, you know what, I'm, I'm just gonna steep this. We've always just steeped nettles and horsetail before. I'm gonna steep this entire pregnancy brew and see what happens. And it was like as if the plants were just screaming out the next day, like, this is it, you got it. You know, it's it's herbology for plants. You can help us and treat us and help us grow and help stimulate our immune response through other plants because it's something that they understand. And we've always had a really spiritual connection with our gardens and with our gardening and with our wild crafting and foraging. And we've always had a, you know, a spiritual connection. So, you know, we, we definitely recognized, of course, that we're growing a female plant and the female cannabis plant. So it was a natural connection to using herbology for women to using herbology for female plants. And so that's why there's like wild yam, which is a, a feminine, you know, hormone um, herb, which is in, in our fat flowers blend. And that's why people we feel get such a great response in their flowers and in their terpene re, um, response by using, you know, the products in our, in our blends that we put together. Or also utilizing even flowers. You know, when you see things that are flowering, it's a great thing to utilize in your flowers. So that's a, you know, a feminine quality to a feminine quality. So that's why we utilize a lot of flowers on our property and we suggest for people to do that. It's just been an intertwined, you know, let's say um, work of life that we've intertwined, you know, the gardening with the human health. And it's been extremely beneficial and we feel like it's timeless. It's something that doesn't go away and it's it's almost like it awakens something primal inside people. And when they learn about it, you know, they just want to do it. It just makes so much sense. Yeah, of course. I can relate to that. So when you say you use, um, say, things like even flowers from other plants in the teas, is that kind of like the more terpene rich, the better? And the reason why I ask this is because uh, I've got this frangipani tree in my backyard and it smells so much and it drops so many flowers on me. And I've been looking at it for so long going, I need to make a ferment out of this. What do you guys think? Oh, I think it's fantastic. It's a great idea. You're just taking all of those terpenes and then making them totally usable for your microbiology and then uptake into your plants. It's great. And frangipani, oh, amazing. I just had a big whiff of it go through my body when, <laughs> when you said that. That's beautiful. Um, another thing is um, as far as, you know, fermenting it and extracting that, there's really kind of two ways to ferment biomass, and I think it's good to touch on it, which is, you know, using sugar to extract it and make um, a concentrate with the biomass or using, um, let's say, water, and doing more of an herbal juice. And so we've 
we've touched on this in this in this discu- in this discussion already but we really re- we really prefer the juice the water version as opposed to the soil one it does depend i mean you may live in like in your area with you know near sugarcane or some kind of like sweet crop or something that you can use sugar really easily and, and it a might fruit make, crop. it might make a lot of sense in your area so <clears throat> once again you know farming is a bioregional thing and it really you can't say one thing for all areas but <clears throat> in a lot of our areas um in the northern hemisphere um you know sugar doesn't do well you know up here it doesn't grow and 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 in our bodies it's a, it's like a hot it's a hot thing that goes through our body and it burns out quick so we don't really want to use that it's not good for our health so when um extracting with sugar and when it doesn't come from our area it doesn't make sense we really want to try and make a tea that's from our area which empowers us to not have to bring something from far away and using water and just chopping up your herbs and and putting herbs in water and letting them ferment and juice you know with the lactic acid bacteria mother culture and fermenting it and juice and then straining it out and activating it is um, our favorite way to extract biomass. Yeah, and what Josh means by juice is the natural plant sugars that are already present in the plant. And, you know, also the the reference to hot, you know, uh, sugar, sugar is something that when you eat it in your body, it creates immediate energy. The energy is quick, it's fast. And then, as we all know, that's why people call it a sugar high, because there's a downside to the sugar high. And microbiology has that same thing. So if you add a whole bunch of sugar to your tea brews, it's going to spark an immediate microbiological like effect that then burns out very quickly. And maybe sugars are okay to add a tiny, teeny, tiny bit to maybe start spark that microbiology. But you want your microbiology to be subsisting off of the plant material and the plant sugars and the plant extracts that are already within there. So, you know, we we don't utilize sugars in our tea brews because we really don't eat sugar in our home either. Um, you know, people utilize some of these as an extract. I think that maybe it is it is a good idea if you have an opportunity to buy a product at a store or you have an opportunity to make your own extract and concentrate from plants that are, say, seasonal, and then you bring it to your indoor, um, you know, operation, then that makes a lot of sense because the more homemade things, the better. But fresh is always going to be best. And we feel like utilizing the plant sugars over any type of processed sugar is going to be the best. And and also to, to interject here really quickly, sugars are very different. You know, evaporated cane juice is very different than beet sugar. And, you know, you have to be very careful um, what you're eating and also what you're putting in your tea brews. A beet sugar is a monosaccharide. You know, your, your microbiology doesn't recognize it. It just starts killing things. It's the same within your body. So when you look at a label that just says sugar, it's mostly going to be beet sugar because that's a GMO crop that they're producing on a mass level. And it just produces a lot of candida and yeast things within our body and also within our soil. So looking up what a polysaccharide is and the more saccharides that are in within a sugar is definitely what you're looking for because that's going to be a prebiotic 
to certain types of organisms that are beneficial. And yacone is one thing that's came and that's come into our life, which is from South America, and it's a watery tuber, and it's really, really um, sweet, and it's a really, really good companion plant. It's aerates your soils, and it's a really good thing to use for um, and a great teeth. prebiotic and also polysaccharide. And it's, it's high in inulin as, as opposed to insulin, and it's just a prebiotic. Um, uh, it's a prebiotic for good mi microbiology. Yes, that's all really interesting stuff, especially with that inulin comment. I've been looking into that a little more myself recently. Something though I wanted to ask about the evaporated cane sugar. This may feel like a little bit of a redundant question, but I noticed it's in some of your products. And so I guess the question is, do you find like that's the one you would pick if you had to use one? Or is there something maybe a little better, but, you know, for whatever reason, you don't put that in the products? Like wh where do you sit on the sugars? Like which is your personal favorite? Well, we put that in our product because we know the source of that. And so the source is always really important. We know that that farm that makes that sugar is of ups, you know, standing value. It's a smaller, you know, farm. It's a good product. It contains a lot of polysaccharides. It is from cane sugar. And we put a tiny bit in there just to spark the microbiology, to wake them up, to then have them start eating the herbs. And that's exactly what we do within our tea brews as well. But when you've got fresh plants, then you're going to be having a lot more sugars that there's no need to add any other extra sugar because we notice the microbiology is sparked up right away. But in our product, there's dried you know, um, herbs in there. So to spark the microbiology immediately is a good idea, but you don't want them to sustain off of the sugars because then that's just creating you want yeast and fungi that's pathogenic. The, the herbology that you put in there, mm -hmm. the, the herbs. Yeah, perfect. Makes sense. So if we just loop back to one or two questions ago when I was talking about the kind of the onus on the community to be, you know, more solidified in a legal sense, I guess. I just wanted to ask a few quick legal questions. Like, I guess the most kind of relevant one to me is if you could kind of just change one law or maybe a few, which ultimately just kind of change one thing ultimately, what's the one thing that you feel is most pertinent to get fixed or changed or whatever, you know, set right, so to speak? I mean, right off the bat, I would love to see cannabis decriminalized and not legalized. Because legalized means that you're immediately going to have rules and regulations and all different kinds of conference calls and people and money and investors and corporations and big bucks and everything is coming in. And it really has a negative connotation. But when you decriminalize something that allows people to go on about their business and lots of herbs are, you know, decriminalized you can't really like go and make a whole bunch of them or whatever, you know, say like poppy or something. You can grow them in your garden and it's up to you as to what you want to do with that. And just right off the bat, did you, did that's you really, mean, uh, you know, radical. Did you mean agriculture laws? Yeah, like anything really. I mean, maybe maybe a, a better example would be maybe something a little smaller than like a you know broad scale decriminalization. Like because I hear a lot of people complain about lots of the the smaller like kind of sublegalities of the legalization, like whether it be limits on how much small producers can grow or just you know like uh, financial hurdles for certain people to get into the game. You know all of those types of things. Yeah. I, well, I mean, capping capping. You know the the your farm limit canopy. your canopy is, is I think is a great way to, a great law because um, when you don't cap you, when you have a legalization structure and you don't cap what farms can do then you just get crazy farms like in Canada and different places in California you get these farms that are like 
20 acres and there are a million square feet and all of a sudden it's like how many million square feet companies do you need in a country or in a legalized um, area so i think capping it and having more farms is going to give more you know ability for more farms to grow and really what we need is and i think this is a problem in in a lot of agriculture is is the corporatization of it and the mass scale of it all i think we need a lot of smaller farms producing more intentional um products and so i think that capping it would be one thing another thing with with as far as agriculture laws and organics goes I mean, I would like to see organic mean absolutely no chemicals used. And another one, plastic mulch not allowed. <laughs> plastic mulch not allowed with organic farming. Sorry. It's not organic. <laughs> Sorry, organic farms. Not okay. Yeah. I mean, every single year you're going to throw away your plastic mulch because you can get your zucchini out two weeks earlier. Your strawberries not, not out enough. a month earlier. Yeah. Mm. And so when you say that, are you referring to kind of like that shredded polypipe stuff or more of like a, just a general plastic cover type of thing? It's well, polypots we don't agree with either. It's a sheet of plastic that goes over the ground that people utilize for weed control. It burns out the, any kind of weeds and seeds that is there. And also, of course, it's going to burn out a tremendous amount of your microbiology. And also, it makes the soil warmer in a lot of regions so that you can push a crop. Earlier, earlier, so you can get earlier harvest out of it, and it keeps the moisture. And the, there's tractors that have, you know, giant rolls of plastic. I know, I know, people have the acres. They're 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 organic farmers have acres of 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 earth covered in black plastic that's covering their mounds, and every year they throw it away. Yeah, and this well. is like majority I mean, of the U.S. Okay. This is the majority of the U.S.'s, you know, 88% of the organic market in the U.S. comes from California alone. And then like over 90% of that comes from like the Salinas County and, you know, all of that area and region. And all of that is covered in black plastic and they can still put an organic standard on it. And they can use glyphosate as well. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it goes on and on. Another thing I remember you specifically referencing, Kelly, was in uh, one of the talks I saw on YouTube, you mentioned that there's an increasing amount in terms of, say, your percentage or composition of your products, which can like be kind of ambiguously labeled or just blatantly not organic, but still gets that label. Do you think that that, for example, is kind of like the ultimate nail in the coffin for organic certifications and labeling? It is. It because, definitely is. Yeah, because you'll get farms that use things. Well, Omri is something in America that people use. And North they, America. It, yeah, mm -hmm. and and they will use a product that's registered, and then they'll find out that it wasn't even what was on the label. It was something that was a carrier in the product in the liquid that maybe makes their 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 product fail in a test. So that's that's kind of your big problem. And also, the, you know, the fine print, you know, will say that this product is registered for use in organic agriculture. It is not saying that it is organic. The language that is utilized is utilized and geared towards big ag, no matter what country that you're on, Department of Ag 
the EPA, whatever your standardization you know names are, they're all under the same umbrella, and that's big agriculture. Big agriculture makes up those rules and regulations, and they're the ones that have all the way down to the labeling. I mean, you would not believe we need to change our labels for every single state, like practically every other month. Because they, because they can see toxicity levels. And well, all. and they continue changing the language. We can no longer utilize the term healthy on any of our labels because the term healthy implies that you have used a pesticide on the pesticide list. So if you have a pesticide, then you can say this pesticide will bring health to your garden. So they've taken away that ability for us to be able to use language in a way that is actually educational. Labels are not education. We need to look further than labels to be able to get our education because they're out there trying to trick us. And part of looking further is, you know, when you get organic liquid fertilizers of any kind, liquid itself is a problem. You have to have some type of stabilizer within that liquid. And a preservative. And that preserves it in order for it to not explode on the shelves. And if it's not exploding on the shelves, then how much is it really doing for your microbiology to begin with? Because microbiology has to live or it dies. So different things that preserve liquid are a problem, phosphoric acids and different things that can be in there. Um, so you have to be you have to be a little bit um, you have to be aware of of the companies. There's there's even different things in sprays and foliar sprays that that are um, in the in there that are not on the label that can be a toxic residue on your plants later. And that's why we use only powders in our products, because then we put the power in the farmer's hand to make liquid out of it. And then you're not and then we have everything in glass and not in plastic. So there's no plastic garbage. And we encourage people, you know, to grow your own biomass and not buy our products. So that's the ultimate goal is that everybody is closed loop and that you're creating your own nutrients. And wow, that is just like the best middle finger in the world to big ag. There's no more power than we have than to grow our own seeds and propagate our own vegetables and our own medicine on our farm with the nutrients that we grow there. So if we just kind of reference the comments you made about encouraging people to close the loop, where do you ultimately see dragonfly earth medicine if that were to happen for example let's just say you know there was a, a substantial number of pure farms and you know we had reached that goal would you would you kind of launch dragonfly as you know like a slightly different direction at that point or do you think there would still be a need for it in the way it currently operates so to speak um I mean, you know, dragonfly, I guess a lot like the species, we're just all over the place. We feel like education is number one. And, you know, we're farmers first. And we came up with our products after we were farmers for 20 years, you know. And then then the education started sparking out because we came out of the closet and we realized, wow, we're doing things really different than everybody else because we had to hike, you know, seven hours out into the bush or a two-hour hike straight up the mountain, um, you know, from our property, we weren't able to bring anything. And because we didn't share with other community cannabis members or anything, we didn't know that we were that different. So when we came out of the closet, we started thinking, wow, this is actually really unique, and we maybe have something to share with the rest of the community. And it turns out that people all over the world are hungry for this knowledge. And it's not even really that we're teaching people 
we're just reminding our basic human instinct of our relationship to the earth. And as far as Dragonfly and Dragonfly Earth Medicine in the world, and as we're really proud of our products, and and they do, we feel like they'll always have a place because there's always going to be someone on Earth or in a place that you know doesn't live near biomass, or or even farms that we work with will use you know the products because it makes a really quick and nice and easy tea, so it's, it's safe too. and it's easy, and you can and, it, and the plants respond to it right away, so. We, we see our, our products as timeless. We have human health products as well, you know, our, our raw cacao. And so our, it, that part of our – and we've never taken – you know, we've never um, done marketing with, our, with, with any of our business either. So we've taken this unique stance of showing a lifestyle and having, you know, products as well. So we, we, we will always – be connecting with farmers in the world and that's that's i think our true love our true love is is homesteading and working with raw materials and and building and doing timber framing or 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 or, or midwifery it's home birth or or gardening and on, on that level we always want to expand with that kind of direct contact with farmers and at the end of the day you know if the business fails and you know it all goes to hell in a handbasket we're just going to be humble farmers because that's what we do so i'll be helping catch babies and we'll be humble farmers because that's our true love and everything else is sparked off of that well it's a good thing i don't think that'll happen but one thing I did want to specifically inquire into is will there ever be a point where, you know, Dragonfly's seeds will be commercially available for people to buy? An interesting question about seeds is that um, the answer is we don't know because we've been giving away our seeds and we give them away to people that we see and we never felt like you could put a monetary number on a seed. So it's really interesting that it involves ethics, it involves, you know, getting it out there to the public, it involves exchange between two people. There's so much, you know, with seeds, it's, it's, it's sort of the essence of, of all of this. And we've always just given them away. So we don't really know what's going to happen. We've, we've just been breeders because that's part of our closed loop and we're breeders because we didn't have tests you know, and and facilities it, to be able to tell us. So we went off of smell. We went off of how it made you feel. And now we've been breeding for almost 25 years now off of what it made us feel. And now those genetics are being tested and they're awesome. So here's a really beautiful, you know, focus on intuition than matching science and maybe the intuition was always right. I know I'm going off well, of subject here with the seeds. We've definitely, <laughs> you know, we've, we've, like, we've you know, seen our seeds grow in a lot of different environments and we've gotten a lot of feedback from people that have gotten our seeds and there really is a really strong vigor that goes through the seeds. They're like the first ones to pop and there'll be, you know, big leaves and everything. So, I mean... Uh, what we can say is we will always breed. We always will be making seeds. If 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 it does become available to the world, it's because all of a sudden there's this crazy world demand. But but for now, it's just it's just a labor of love. And anyone who comes in contact with us, we are pretty damn generous about it. So it just feels good to exchange. Yeah, of course. And so. 
if we kind of look at your specific situation, I know that you guys do all your breeding outdoors and you don't use clones or anything. One of our viewers had submitted the question of wanting to know, do you feel like that makes your breeding a little harder in that, you know, uh, you know, uh, sorry, I keep saying, you know, it's such a pet peeve of mine. I'll cut that out. <laughs> um, but basically they were wondering, do you feel like it limits you in that because you've got a male outside, there's say you wanted to do a few different projects, you may not be able to do as many as you wanted because you have to be mindful of, you know, the pollen may carry and we only want to do so many and not risk having too many males around. Is that something which ever goes through your mind or is it just not actually like that in reality? No, we feel like the best breeding is done in nature and that's just been proven, you know, to do fast cycle breeding is not something that we want to do because we want to see the the full expression of the plant. We want to see it from seed all the way through. And we do take cuttings sometimes. We do take a cutting off of, like if we have a, a bunch of plants and we're growing them out long season and we've got one that's like, oh my goodness, this one is so beautiful. We're going to have to keep it. We won't even think about keeping it until the very end, maybe when we're harvesting it, you know, so that will be like an extenuating circumstance. But some of our breeding has come off of that. But long season, you know, when we call it an F1, it's a true F1. That's a full year. Well, I mean, for sure, you know, if you're going to start a genetics company, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily do it the way we did it. I mean, we're doing it because, yeah, you could get. You know, you could stabilize a strain, you know, technically, you know, by, you know, doing it five or seven, you know, generations, which no one does. But, but, you know, so, yeah, well, we've yeah, gotten of to course, 12 and it's if you're going to start stable. a genetics company, you know, you can get a lot more out of it. But I, I will say this. I mean, our breeding is a labor of love and it's an expression of ours. So, you know, and we think that there is an, an incredible amount of strength that comes from breeding underneath the sun and and we we've we've grown seeds from other people that grow underneath the sun and we've seen that within other people's genetics as well and um so you know we feel like there's an incredible vigor that comes from growth from creating seeds outdoors and we we put a lot of intention into you know choosing the right male and we grow that male outside you know all the way out until the very end and then we bring it inside like the room of our house in order to keep the the pollen um from going all over the property but yes we 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 think that it's a good way to breed because we've seen a lot of good results from it and then when you get our seeds and our genetics it's a full expression of our microbiome here on our farm it's a full expression of the flowers and the plants that we grow here yeah, well, I think that's probably why the seeds are so healthy because there's certainly a d an increasing demand, I should say, for seeds produced by growers slash breeders who are breeding in, you know, as much of an organic environment as possible because you can kind of see, you know, the seeds come out really healthy. But I wanted to ask one other quick question about um, in regards to you said if it's if it's a keeper, you know, you want to hang on to it. Does that, I mean, I guess the implication is you reveg it. Do you find that that revegging process is detrimental at all or not not after you've got it back to where it needs to be? No, we haven't seen that. You know, a really, really beautiful, healthy plant can definitely produce a healthy clone. Zelly's Gift is a, is a plant that we cloned in 2014 and it's still going really strong for a lot of people. So, the initial stages of cloning, you know, a flowering, I mean, the Zelly's gift, we cloned it the day we harvested it. 
So and these were big plants. These were like, you know, 10, 10, 12 foot plants that we're that we're talking about. And on the inside part of the plants, there's a lot of, you know, inner branches that will leave some of those inner branches on the inside part of the plant during the, the flowering phase and not we won't clear out everything in there just in case we do find a plant that's just like amazing and then we can clone it. <clears throat> so it's not like you're cloning like a bud, you know, you're cloning like an inner branch that has less of a bud head on it and it has a little bit more leaf matter on it. And that's going to be, you know, way more likely to revegetate. So you have to have a little bit more patience with it. You know, it's not going to be like a typical clone that you're getting off the end of the meristem you know, of the plant, but, and also, you know, you can get a clone. We've noticed we've gotten clones before. And then if we put them in a full outdoor cycle, then it really rejuvenates the clone. You know, so many of our, our genetics are getting either watered out or we're losing the vitality of the genetics, both with interbreeding and also just overbreeding. And if you have an amazing clone that you just love to bring it outside and let it go full season and then reclone it, you're really going to reinvigorate that strain. And we've done it over and over again. We've even taken like a clone that tests out something and then put it into the ground and had a full season and then it tests out something totally different. So, you know, that's where we were talking at the very beginning that microbiology does have a tremendous amount to do with the health and vitality, cannabinoid ratio, cannabinoid profile, terpene profile. And and another thing is, you know, we would never grow a feminized seed. We just don't believe in feminizing seeds. And we don't smoke tobacco around our plants. I don't have a problem with tobacco. And, and people smoking it, but it's not healthy to have tobacco smoke around, you know, cannabis plants in there. And, and, um, you know, you have to be careful with, you know, just breeding and breeders and knowing your breeders and knowing, you know, what kind of environment it's, you know, being grown in because the plant is uptaking like information as it's growing. And when it's growing in a totally healthy environment, the information that it's uptaking is just, full happiness, full expression, no barriers. So a question that we kind of normally start the interview off, but I mean, we were having so much fun talking about other stuff, we didn't get to it. So let's go back. What was your guy's first introduction to cannabis? Um, well, mine was in, um, in the formation of my, my seed and creation. <laughs> so my my very creation on earth um has been me being surrounded by cannabis. So um I my connection was being born into it and um I really have always felt really um a a, a beautiful connection to it. It's always been, you know, good quality around and um it's 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 always something i felt really called to and connected with in my life and josh is from southern oregon so you know one of the weed capitals of the world and uh it's just yeah yeah so add that yeah no forget it (laughs) yeah no it's 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 been you know a huge part of my life and i and i feel really blessed to be able to have such a you know to still have such a connection with it and stuff and and everything so it's multi-generational and even for uh you know our kid too and uh and his partner the snodgrass family and my my um connection to it was i was definitely not born into it quite the opposite 
you know, family that believed in the just say no campaign, you know, was real. And, um, you know, anything outside of, you know, copious amounts of alcohol, you know, shouldn't be done. Um, And so I was raised in a very conservative family, Catholic, uh, you know, just all of sort of the pointing fingers at what to do and what not to do. And um, I tried my very first joint that worked. I think I had to try it a couple of times. (laughs) But the first joint that worked was actually up on top of a mountaintop skiing backcountry with eight of my really good friends. And I got high for the very first time when I was 16. And it was a whiteout. And I had to get down the mountain with all of these amazing (laughs) hot shots. And I just thought, had I not been totally baked, I would have never gotten down the mountain. So immediately I had a relationship with it. And then from there, um, I worked in 1988 up in Alaska and I was blessed to work with um, a man called Johnny Appleseed, who literally during festivals in midsummer would drop cannabis seeds out of his airplane the and Matt all Nuska of us. Thunderfuck. Yeah. The Matanuska Thunderfuck, which was the original, you Alaskan bushed weed. That was awesome and super flavorful. And yeah. And he did a lot of his, um, you know, cultivation practices were then what I took on later on in my life. But, but that was my initial introduction. And I just started working there almost full time around the clock in a big cannabis field when I had just turned 18. And luckily, and then it's never ended. Yeah. Luckily, Kelly and I, I mean, we've been together for 25 years now. and We, we got together when we were really young, 27 now. But, and, uh, yeah. you know, we have a 21 year old son now and we've, you know, he's just been a part of our whole entire life. It's given us, that's why we have so much respect for it. We feel like it's given us, you know, everything that we have essentially. And I feel like, you know, just first being introduced to cannabis, then it opened up my eyes to the whole cannabis culture. And for the first time, I felt a belonging. I felt like, you know, I went to my first Grateful Dead show when I was 17 years old um, in 1986, um, Alpine Valley. (laughs) And I was immediately around all of that culture. And for the first time, I felt family. So not only has cannabis given me a tremendous amount of education and health, but it's also given me family. Wow. That's an amazing answer. Just as a quick little side point that may upset some of my close friends. Do you agree that the dead fell off in like 90, 90 onwards, so to speak? Um, The dead fell off when Jerry died. Yeah. So that's just, and that's when we moved up to Canada but when you say the dead, the dead coffin ninety, that means that you love Brent. Yeah, and really, well, well, really, you should love Brent because there was like a fire that happened within the band when Brent was around, and that's just a real thing. And and, and it had a lot really to do. Happen. It had a lot to do with crosstops and and really strong LSD as well. So you know, as as the drugs changed, things changed as well. But as far as the culture of traveling and being like what the dead represented, which was more than music. I mean, for sure that did nothing happened to that. It only got you know more more strong and and all the way. We would have never moved to British Columbia if it wasn't for Jerry. Dying. And and honestly, I was able. I made my way through university 
by swinging kind buds at dead shows. That's that's how it all happened for me. So I have a, a double major in university and almost a master's because, you know, cannabis gave me that at a very young age. Fantastic. And did you have any of the kind of, how should I say, like deeply meaningful experiences which so many people say they have had at the dead shows? Or was it, as you said, more of just like a, a welcoming community and things like that? I mean, there's no other church We've than absolutely. having Jerry just <laughs> going off and the whole crowd elevating a foot off of where they're standing and every single person having an unbelievable group experience of total oneness. You know, I have yet to experience that at any other place. And, you know, that goes into all of our psychedelic use that we, you know, have taken on throughout our adult life as well. You know, all of them very important, but there was something about sharing that experience and that high with the same Um, like-minded people. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing more. We've had the most mind blowing, you know, transforming experiences at Grateful Dead shows. And then it just goes into the parking lot afterwards and there was camping afterwards. So, and there was no internet at the time and people weren't just like buried into their, their phones and stuff. Instead they were buried into like their, each other and, hacky sacks and guitars and drums and drum circles and disco buses and you know you would get to like know people and and you would hear about people communes and people living a certain way and you would you know it was the most amazing thing in the world and a lot of the grateful dead family are still really really close with us and we're really blessed to have a close relationship with a lot of them they live in eugene and and in oakland and stuff and we have a lot of respect for them huge amount of love Huge love, big love to the Merry Pranksters and and Mountain Girl and every everything that the whole family has done and still do. They still rock our community with love. Mm-hmm. And There's, those they, are our elders. Over. Those are our elders. That's over. when we were saying at the beginning. You know, we really don't feel like we're elders in this community. Those are the real elders. Those are the ones Ken in their mid seventies that you know helped bring this plant forward. You know, Mountain Girl. She wrote one of the first cannabis books out there that are totally relevant, you know, the primo plant today. And those are our real, you know, teachers and guides that have helped us catapult forward to then catapult into the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. I was about to say, wow, it's been a minute since I've heard of the Merry Pranksters. Uh, So I guess with that all being said, at what point did you kind of have the initial thoughts to start Dragonfly and what was the ultimate catalyst? Well, we we moved to another country in 98 and lived the way that we lived for a really long time. And we got we became citizens of this country through doing um, imports from um, Indonesia. And then that we started transforming out of that after, you know, a while and started feeling like we really wanted to do. Um, a service, you know, to the earth and a service that really represented our lifestyle. And um, it became, you know, and by 2007, we we formed Dragonfly Earth Medicine as a representation of our lifestyle. Yeah. And I I think that also is a representation of our direct, you know, of our recipes. 
So it was the first time that we were able to share our recipes and it didn't start out that we just had dragonfly earth medicine. It started out that we were just making a ton of stuff for all of our friends and then they were getting it from us and oh my God, you guys, this stuff is so amazing and, you know, teaching them how to grow it and then them drying it out and then, you know, taking all of the different herbal concoctions and then it really became about sharing our recipes and we're working on a book now. It's been several years working on it. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger <laughs> because there's so much information. But it is, it's really that same thing. It's, it's sharing the recipes of our life and of our cultivation practices. That's a really good answer. And so something which a lot of people have asked us questions about is your recent trip to Jamaica. And you, you referenced it earlier, but I wanted to do a whole bunch of questions on it. So I figured we'd, we'd kind of dedicate a little block to it. First of all, what was the, uh, the, I guess, you know, the inspiration to do the Jamaica trip? The inspiration was, um, we had been reached out to by certain parts of the community and, um, you know, they had to, to come out and, to to collaborate with them and, and to work with them on their the project. And so and they were know. needing, you know, some help and some some ideas and, and some changes. They wanted to make changes to become, you know, more closed loop. And they had been asking us for, you know, maybe a whole year to come out. And we finally said, yeah, OK, we'll do it now. And um, that's just sort of how it all began. So, and it was an opportunity for us to bring together our community and theirs and for us to learn from their community and, and from us to and for us to teach them, you know, from um, our community, you know, things that we had learned and stuff. So it was we felt like it was a really beautiful information exchange. Yeah. And so when you got there, what were kind of the first, or I shouldn't say what the first, like what were some of the initial styles of gardening slash principles slash methodologies, however you want to classify it, what were the main tools you used when you were kind of revitalizing the land? It's from, from a third, uh, from like an outside of point of view, it looked like you were using kind of, you know, the use of IMO, some kind of KNF style principles. Is that how you would describe it or how, how would you describe what you did essentially? Yeah. Well, well, it's the same. You you know, you just go into an area and you just try they had to figure been out doing a lot of really good practices on the property and and building soils and stuff. And when we got there, we were able to, you know, continue the work and and connect more with the the surroundings. And you know, using a chipper was a big part of it. You know. Yeah, and just seeing what was available in and around the property and what it is that they had available. So. You know, we had talked to them at the beginning and they had gotten a chipper, you know, uh, and we just started, you know, talking about, you know, what type of ratios of chipping that you can utilize. And, you know, within two to three days, we had massive piles of soil that we just planted directly into. And it's amazing how when you just utilize what is there around you, it's great to go to the tropics, too, because it's a whole different like reality of what we deal with up here but really it's the same in that you just look at the biomass that's available but there's not like a lot of earthworms there you know when you go to tropical climates you're you're dealing with massive amounts of microbiology you know tropical regions you know rejuvenate themselves so quickly you know jungles are just eating themselves and regrowing themselves you know so quickly 
and in Jamaica it really has like that jungle feeling so the microbiology is so much you know finding indigenous microorganisms is like it they're everywhere it, you put something down on the ground you add a little bit of water to it and it's going to disintegrate within a day so what kind of things could you lay on top of the ground that could become soil really quickly and we just sort of got into the brain of the microbiology there and went through Well, that. yeah, I mean, for example, I think uh, a regular bale of peat moss, like a four cubic yard um, bale of peat moss is like $70 or something. It's like some crazy amount of money, you know what I mean? So you really can't take the mentality of, oh, I'm going to make soil for, you know, a ganja garden or something or, you know, buy from the store type thing. So... You know, you could get a bale or, or have a couple bales and then you might maybe want to like, you know, extend that as much as possible. So one thing is, is we started digging around on the property and, and saw other, you know, areas on the property that were dug out from greenhouses and stuff. <clears throat> and we started realizing, you know, on the on the property, what parts of it had really good deposits of earth. So there was I mean, I mean, like soil, usable soil. Some of it was kind of like clayish and 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 had like a tendency to want to bind together. But so what we did is we just would take wheelbarrows of that and just start mixing it, you know, with the biomass that we were collecting from different places, and we were basically we were aerating it, aerating it with biomass and stuff. So it was it was a hands-on collection, and we walked around with the you know with the 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 people from the, the friends from the village and. And we really connected with what vegetation, you know, was good to use. And we would reach our hands into the ground and see what kind of, you know, dirt there was in earth. And we would see how we could bring that up and propagate it and stuff. So that that was our, you know, that was how it started and when this, we first got there. This is an example of really a lot of the island being full of a lot of clay, very hard stuff to be able to work with and just getting out of the mindset that you have to go in the ground, you know, that you can come up and out of the ground and that soil is available everywhere you look because it, things grow so voraciously everywhere. You know, the same as in Australia, there's, there's so many Northern regions and areas that things are just growing so much. That is your soil. And if we start looking at what is above is below, then it, it just makes it really easy to adapt a garden very quickly, even if you don't understand the surroundings or you don't even know the vegetation. Yeah, yeah, some really pertinent points there. One thing I personally noticed from the, the images that I saw on your Instagram, for example, was that the soil itself didn't look all that aesthetically pleasing, especially if you come from like an indoor setting where, you know, it looks all nice and homogenous. However, you couldn't deny it, like what you said, you know, they're planning straight into it. There was no issues, all that type of thing. What I ultimately am interested in though is how do you think that soil would have ultimately compared? Like, do you think that it was kind of like you were making the situation work, but at the same time, there's kind of, you know, a bit of a honest truth that you know maybe it's not going to perform as well as the peat but you know given the situation the cost all the rest it's clearly the superior option well it's definitely clearly the superior option no matter what even if i had available soil to be buying from the store what we were making if you it know, comes on in a bag land, on that land was absolutely superior and i mean if you look at the whole island of jamaica i mean you know, there's a lot of different kinds of soil on the island. There's red soil, there's black soil, there's, 
hard soil and stuff. So it, it is extremely dependent on, on where you are. Mm-hmm. And it is amazing, you know, when you go to even Hawaii and different places, you know, there's the red dirt is an incredible dirt that grows, you know, plants amazingly. So really, you can't really go on visual. What you really need to have in there once we what we say all the time is just biomass. So, I mean, that's what, how we're aerating the soils and that's how we're attracting more worms. There wasn't there was worms around, but there wasn't a ton. So we were trying to, like, just gather them for wherever we we found it. But you find that it, it's it, they're not the big digesters, you know, of soil. The big digesters yeah. is the microbiology in the soil. So the soil that we were digging up and the soil that we made, we made a whole batch of soil, you know, within the first week that we were there and planted seeds that we brought in that soil. And, you know, we had gone on some other farm tours and went around and but we got to see those seeds germinate out of the soil that we made and got to see the the health of the seeds and stuff so i i I do believe that you know the soil was really really powerful and good yeah that's awesome to hear so you i mean you just tapped on the the genetics point the question i have is because i've seen other other people go to jamaica most notably uh, sonic seeds a uk-based breeder he's been there and done a bit of a land race hunt type of thing and obviously you would have been exposed to different genetics on the island what did you see when you were there because a lot of what people say is like it's a lot of really acclimatized dutch stuff from years gone by and that the general consensus is there's not really any pure land race anymore would you agree with that yes definitely as far as like climatized i don't know i don't we didn't really see too many climatized patches you know uh they're all really short and there's even an eight week can be flowering out in five weeks. It forms the tiniest little bud on it. You know, it's not something that's it's all acclimate. Hybrids. Yeah, it's all hybrids that, you know, have a lot of maybe the high Himalayan, cold climate, northern Cali or I European say it's Dutch, strain. Like all Dutch. I mean, there's a lot of California influence in there and for sure. I mean, there's, you know, I, I, I'm not, I have no idea about percentage wise and stuff, but. I would say that we found with the Jamaican farmers that, you know, they were no very similar to any one of us who really want the best flavor and the newest genetic and the newest, you know, best crystals and, and hash making things. So the over focus. the years, they've met people and people have come to the island and, and they've, you know, would, would be, be get, get gifted or something. And so what you find when you go to the farms is as a is a lot of small plants, which are mostly hybrid from a lot of years of people, you know, yeah, breeding from um, other places in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's really, you know, there, there is that, that farm or that place that has land race and <clears throat> it's, they're off the beaten track. And, you know, it's, it's really not a sought after thing on the island, really, because it, of, you know, what they, they feel like they can grow now, let's say. And we, we felt like it was really important, you know, that, that the genetics that we brought there were very thought out. And we brought genetics, um, you know, from Bodhi and from Coastal Seeds and Bob Henpill, um, you know, that were climatized, that were more like Thai varieties that we know that maybe they could start interbreeding and trying to find, you know, a biologically intelligent tall long flowering because anywhere around the tropics you know it's a 12 12 
And, and that's the genetics that we, you know, search for in, in, in our realms is that, you know, two month, eight week plant. But when you're there, you know, you put out a really small plant and immediately just starts flowering. You're not going to be able to, number one, it's, it's not going to reach the full potential. I mean, waste if you're lucky. We saw, you know, whole fields of just like knee high. And it's because these these plants don't have the intelligence of a 12-12 cycle. They don't have the intelligence of an equatorial you know, region either. If so, they could get a really sweet producing sativa that does take longer, it makes their plants, you know, bigger and nice and and, and really expressive. I mean, you know, that's, so that was a big thing. Yeah, we went know. and talked a lot about breeding and went and talked to a lot of breeders. There's a and, lot of open breeding happening by a lot of farmers where, you know, they just let, you know, a few males, you know, pollinate gardens in certain areas and stuff. So, you know, that is a really good way of breeding from from their point of view and it gets a lot of different flavors and and their flavors are all you know they they get through them they sell them and and do it you know it's so it works in in that climate but um yeah so like when on the island itself if you had to take a guess does kind of marijuana make up a large part of the the economy or it's a relatively a smaller part nowadays like is it a, is it a big thing for them well, back in the 80s, it was huge. And, you know, they were cutting out swaths of, of jungle and landing, you know, big airplanes. And then all of that, you know, ganja was brought out all over Europe, especially UK and Holland and, and all of that, and then turned into hash. And so there was a really huge economy for, you know, weed growers on that island because, not only did they have the culture of weed, but they also had the know-how how to grow it, and it was really good, and they were already growing you know, pretty large amounts of it. So for them for to sure. be able to expand yeah. was really easy, but now they're seeing the same thing as the whole cannabis industry. You know, Anywhere that it's been legalized, you know, with legalization comes regulations that then make it really difficult to be able to have an economy off of that. So now all of a sudden through legalization, you know, they're keeping all of their weed inter island and wow. there's not enough people, you know, well, and they're looking to be able to get it out for sure. But that's a whole other conversation with pharmaceutical companies. I mean, you know, cannabis. every, for sure, <laughs> most people grow, I mean, uh, smoke cannabis on the island and you know it's it's everyone's smoking ganja and it's it's not a thing at all to worry about and it's it's definitely a huge part of the thing it's not valuable on the island i mean it's mm -hmm. it's valuable i'm not saying you know there's there's farmers and they and they sell and they make monetary living. Value. you know it's 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 inexpensive you know on the island type thing so it's you know to make a lot of so i'd say it seems like cannabis is is definitely in a really big transformation in on Jamaica because of of legalization like Kelly said but with legalization is is becoming international um you know farming is what you're starting to see on Jamaica and other countries and <clears throat> I think Jamaica's big you know goal or, or thing in life is I mean they've helped bring cannabis culture to the world through their practices and through their love of Rastafari and reggae music and so they, they want to still save their culture and save their farms and their way of life and growing. And they, they, they do want to see legalization, but they, to, to see legalization meaning a bunch of international 
companies coming in and using their island to grow a bunch of weed, like say, for example, Canadian companies could potentially are, are, you know, working in Jamaica right now. And a lot of weed on Jamaica really to be valuable has been exported over the years, even in the 80s. So now that export market is now transforming to a legalization market. And, you know, I think that there's a there's a cultural thing at stake there. And I think they really want to save their culture. And there's and, also a health stake there, you know. So these large can- corporate cannabis are coming to the island, you know, not to spread doom and gloom, but to give people an education out there. We think that it's totally imperative. Once it becomes federally legal, then there's a play in the international market with all other federally legal countries. And then all of a sudden now it becomes pharmaceutical. So it's going to be really easy for large pharmaceutical companies to, to, to partner with large cannabis companies and those large cannabis companies not even grow the cannabis because they'll get cheaper cannabis with the labor um, and also, you know, the dollar exchange in Jamaica or say in Colombia, you know, the cut flower market is a huge industry. And now the cannabis, big corporate cannabis is starting to have massive takeovers in Colombia and in Brazil. I mean, most of the farms we visited in Jamaica, even, you know, ones that were like roots farms that have been growing for a long time, had been visited by these international companies that we're talking about. Yeah, this is happening now. we, We go there this winter. And as of us going there this winter, all of the farmers have been visited by international companies. I mean, that's that's a that's kind of a generalized statement. But that's that's what we found is that they've been and they want to make deals with and they and they say that, you know, they don't care how it's grown and other countries don't have the same restrictions with pesticides and with fertilizers and with herbicides and fungicides and on and on so that it opens up. And it opens that they either irradiate it or they say they're going to wash it with petrochemical solvents. And then they think that they're washing out all of you know uh any pathogens or purities that are on there it's it's a really big conversation you know this could be a whole other podcast that we do (laughs) yeah well i mean the exact same thing is happening in australia in regards to the uh international you know kind of companies moving in and doing their bit but something i would love to ask first though is do you think part of this problem arises from the increasing demand from the consumer market for concentrates or products which derive from concentrates and thus you know there's maybe not demand but for example the stat i heard was that something like 50 percent of all cannabis sales in the states are related to like vape pens or cartridges or like something along that line and and if it's true it just goes to show yeah like there's just an exponential growth in the, the the demand for these cartridges and so do you think that's a problem because it facilitates you know like just these kind of you know shady concentrate deals going on well, there's a, there's a, that's a whole other conversation too, as far as like concentrates and the cleanliness of concentrates and the importance of the cleanliness of concentrates because it's not just a concentrate; it actually has the name of what it is. You're literally concentrating everything that's in that flower, you know. So, utmost respect for cultivation practices all the way through is imperative for concentrates. And then to look at your other question about it taking over the large market is that, you know, now that pharmaceutical companies are going to be entering into the cannabis market, of course, they're going to be concentrating it. They're going to be getting a product that has the same exact cannabinoid ratio, no matter how or where they put it out. 
and it is a way of dosaging and it's something that they understand. That's not, you know, it's taking it out of sort of the organic, um, you know, world that we know of looking at flowers. Now it's going to be, you know, going into different types of supplements and in all different types of, you know, pills and caps worldwide. So that's definitely going to take up the majority of the market. I think that you're right to say that, you know, the the demand of the people to buy oils is is part of it. And it's it's driven, you know, farms to make concentrates. And um, it's a convenience thing. You know, it's not as smoky and everything. So what you find when you talk to dispensaries and you talk to, you know, who's the you know, the, the people that are buying in the dispensaries, they want something super easy that they can drive around in their car with and stuff. So there is an ease that comes to, you know, having a pen. Um, Pre-rolls is another thing that sells, you know, really, really well in dispensaries, which I think is another thing of ease. You know, it's just easy to get pre-rolls and stuff. And, you know, it's it's always a, a better high, I think, in, in a lot of ways to have like the full flower and I think that um, from a farmer's point of view, I think it's almost good with the, the um, concentrates in a way because you don't have to grow all clones. You can grow, you know, a bunch of seeds, seed plants and have different varieties and then do batches of your flower and make a good oil batch. And it's going to be all that, you know, number and everything. So um, number of cannabinoids and everything. So, I mean, it's it's kind of an amazing question, you know, that you know on on which one came first, essentially. Yeah, I, and well, so what do you think then is the necessary steps for us as either a community or just as a scene, so to speak, to get things back on track? And do you think that it's a knee jerk reaction to say just try to push people to go back to flour? Um, I think the most important thing that we can push people to is know your farmer. The most important thing and the understand purity. where your flowers are coming from, understand where, you know, uh, what dispensary that you want to go to, what breeder that you're working with, you know, really finding out and understanding their practices. An extraction company you're using, you yeah. know, and what, what, so I know we're not saying everyone should only smoke flower, you know, we only smoke flour and we have some, you know, really amazing, you know, extract companies that we well, work with. We work with, with and, Ice Water Hash too. Yeah, well, well so. I mean, there's some really, really good, good companies out there um, that do extracting and stuff. But so what we want to say is, you know, yeah, it's totally, it's totally fine to to use. But we don't, we as a, as a as a certification and as as a as a community, we don't use any petrochemicals when we um, extract our our materials so that's what's really really important to us and i think that customers and, and people that are out there that are consumers should ask you know what did it come from was it made from propane or butane and then or hexane even that white powder cbd that you're talking about is as a hexane product and those are just coming from petrochemical companies and they're just coming from from sources that we just don't want to be involved in. Which goes back to what you were talking about with animal products. It's the same reason. <clears throat> it's the source of what happens within the animal product industry, the source of what happens within the petrochemical industry, as well as the final product. So, you know, all things need to be looked at. And unfortunately, you know, education is paramount. 
How are we going to share education with each other in the importance of being really open and that hopefully dispensaries are getting more on their game and that, you know, more growers are getting more on their game because it's really important because so many of the people that are going to be listening to this podcast and us having this conversation, you know, we're a different group of cannabis enthusiasts, of cannabis cultivators, of cannabis, you know, business people than the other side that I'm talking about with this massive cannabis corporate model that is the other side of cannabis. So it's so important to have education on this side so that we can share and really get the message out. Yeah, 100%. And so this is a bit of a doom and gloom question, but what's your prediction for what would happen to the high-end market, so to speak, if all of the small producers were kind of pushed out, phased out, whatever you want to call it? Well, what you're going to get is a bunch of irradiated weed. Mm-hmm. What, what you're going to get is you're going to get, you're going to get basically um, the same thing as going and buying um, packaged processed food. So by by pushing out the small farmer, you're pushing out the intention. <clears throat> and that'll never happen anyway. There'll, there'll be a resurgence no matter what. Right now is a hard time. But a lot of the true soul growers, you know, already had their properties and are trying to navigate their way through. And um, I think that you're going to just like craft beer and craft wine and craft food, you know, you're going to find you know, regions where it still works to have small farms and the small farms are just going to have such unique flavors and such unique strains that, you know, those, those mass produced farms will, they'll never be able to produce that. I mean, the large automated farms that are happening up in Canada are talking about being no people, there are no people grow the weed. It's all automated. The whole entire thing the all the watering all the spraying all even the harvesting is it's done like robotically wow. and i'd like to think i'd like to think that you know the cannabis plant um you know has her own intelligence and the reason why i say she is it's just a feminine energy plant it doesn't mean that there aren't males and females um but you know she will probably i hope have the last laugh because we're learning that the happier she is and the more grown with better intention and in, you know, beautiful soils, she's going to produce the well-rounded cannabinoid profile that really puts out the medicine that science is going to soon come to. It's what we as old school growers already understand. We know what strains made you feel good. We knew what was going on already before. So if we can just keep that intention moving forward, then the voice of the plant will continue to be moving forward. And and I just hope that the same thing won't happen to this sentient being that has happened to tobacco. You know, tobacco is a plant and it's been taken over by corporate tobacco. But and everybody wants to maybe deem it and say that it's bad, but it has such a sacred, amazing, special plant medicine for the rest of, you know, the world. And I just am hoping that through science and through our intuitive processes, bringing it forward, 
that the plant will have the last laugh and she will demand to be grown in a way that is respectful. Yeah, and and, and it's in a soulful living soil, you're going to find more diverse cannabinoids, so they'll never be able to produce that. Yeah, of course. So with all of that being said, though, do you ever foresee maybe a bigger facility or operation adopting approach similar or maybe even the complete pure certification? Oh yeah, well, we have just large dispens. I mean, uh, large facilities. Um, you know, Green Life Productions in Nevada is uh, an indoor operation that that does fully no-till um, soils and has been expanded in a hard market, in a market that's you know they're one of the only organic cultivators in all of Nevada. Um, so that that's one example, and you know, there's there's a lot of examples in in Colorado and Oregon, yeah. and California that we work with that have adopted it. So we we work with really large facilities and <clears throat> turning over that you know the idea of of just all bottled nutrients and NPK ratios and sort of dead soil and growing plants that really don't have the liveliness that the market is going to be looking for. And also we're going to be coming, becoming smarter as consumers. You know, we're going to start having an idea, you know, as a larger group of, conserv- of consumers of what makes us feel good. Oh, yeah, that made me feel really good. I had a great day on that. And, oh, what was that? And that's going to start, you know, more and more conversations for people. And we're, we're working behind the scenes with, you know, facilities all over the place. I mean, really, over the last 10 years, I mean, we've talked to, you know, seems like, you know, a whole hell of a lot of people. <laughs> and there and there's more, you know, coming and, and different states are, are still opening up and different places in the world are still opening up. So we've always offered ourselves, you know, for for um, you know, information and, and how to. So, you know, whether they're a pure farm or not, you know, they they may have taken on some of the practices that we're that we're working on. Yeah, of course. And I think that's maybe more of a realistic end goal anyway right if, if everyone could adopt most of it rather than expecting it yeah i mean, it, you know what you I mean? Know, yeah i mean once again you know we 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 never claimed you know there's a lot of the people make it what it is you know all the farms are so unique and stuff and everyone brings something unique to the table and you know there's the regenerative farm award and permaculture institute you know high tide permaculture different people that are doing amazing work on farms and and helping people adapt their farm to a natural cycles and um you know it's 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 really an amazing expansion of consciousness right now that's it's really amazing to be a part of and and to watch and we get people you know emailing us all the time that talk about you know us and this changing their life and and just us talking about the things that we talk about them you know opening their eyes to like making changes on so many different levels so there's been amazing you know, positive feedback from it. And just the each one teach one, you know, when you go out and educate a group of people, then those whole group of people are then going to educate other groups of people that can then educate other groups of people. And we just feel like free it up, free up the knowledge. And we're never going to be those people that are like, this is the way to do it. And this is the only way to do it. There's so many different ways to do it to where you're practicing conscious cannabis. And I think that, you know, 
any any way that works for you and your environment, whether it be indoor, whether it be outdoor, how you know whether you're up in Antarctica or whether you're in the tropics or wherever you are cultivating your cannabis, just do it in a conscious way that is going to get out better education to the people that then utilize your product because we're the shamans of, of this medicine. We're affecting somebody's day. You affect their life. You could be affecting their health. Um, you're affecting their family. It's so important to have that feeling of every single flower that you touch and every single plant that you grow, that that is going to have an effect on somebody else's life. And that's what real conscious cultivation is about. So important. Yeah, of course. And so if we just loop back for just two seconds to how we were talking about the automation that's going on in Canada, kind of you know on that same train of thought how do you feel about certain types of automation i mean the one i'm most noticed uh, most interested in is like the uh, automated watering systems like you know the blue mat or the floraflex i'm not sure if those are the brands in america those are the major ones in australia but essentially is this a type of technology you advocate for or do you feel like it's kind of removing a certain level of connection with the plant when you say hand water we advocate for more mulch and hand watering you know i mean i'm not going to say that you know, having a, one of those systems doesn't doesn't work because it does. It works. And if you can't be there and you really want to have a garden, I mean, use one. You know what I mean? Um, it's but, just involving more plastic into your gardens as well and how your teas and what they're running through and all of that stuff breaks down over time. And then really you think that you might be helping yourself, but how many times do you have to fix that system and then order out parts for that system? You're just like, Oh God, there's a lot of pathogens that build up in the hoses too, that mm -hmm. you, you have to be careful of. Mm -hmm. So, and it's taking away that human interaction with the plant and anyone who is out there and is a cultivator totally understands what that is. You know, you can have an ailing plant or a garden and all you do is just give it some attention by giving it good energy and it turns everything around. I mean, you know, sometimes that's not enough. Of course, you have to go, you know, into the deep dredges of education and try to figure it out. But oftentimes just giving good good energy is enough. So if we're going to become, you know, automated, the more and more automated that we, we become, the less and less, less that connected. we're having an interaction with the soil and the plant. And this is why we choose to build, you know, soil the way we do, you know, like whether it's an indoor bed and you keep, you know, wood chips in the bottom of it to keep soil down there, or you, you know, cover the sides to keep, so, you know, the humidity in there, you, whether you're outside and you use rocks, like thin rocks across the top, where you'd use like a rock mulch, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to, to keep the water in there and just yeah. using, we've never used one of those systems. And one of the reasons is, um, it, it's kind of a shallow watering, yeah. you know, water it's, and it does keep biology nice when it's always wet. And there's, you know, there's a lot of reasons why it, it can make sense, but from our point of view, you know, deep watering, you know, gets it, you know, to the lower parts of the roots and that really gives a, a true watering to the root system. And when you start getting down into the sub layers of your soil, that's a lot where the clay is and the minerals are. And then your plant has the ability to sort of break down those, you know, when you have really long tap roots and you're, you know, planting them into the earth, you're going to want a deep water because you don't want your plants just to have shallow roots and then a big wind comes along and then you're done with. 
So, you know, deep watering has a lot of values more than just, you know, a system or whether it's easier. And we don't use a lot of trellis, you know, um, systems on our plants. We don't, we, we let them blow around in the wind and having, you know, a, a more saturated root system that has, a, you know, more ability to, to give its, you know, stock strength and to give, you know, the lateral um, capillaries and 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 the branches, you know, more strength and stuff. That we believe that's why we to grow. You know, you have to think of everything. So we we look at our soils and we build our soils in a way that that we it's going to enhance our watering for the season. You know, it's it's kind of it's not just putting a a, a, a soil mixture together and hoping it's going to like hold water for the season. We got way off track on your question, but... <laughs> no, that's good because I, I got another one related to exactly that. So what I wanted to know was, is, you know, if, if you could kind of choose, so to speak, do you prefer your soil to be like more of a water retaining soil or would you prefer to water more frequently because it kind of, you know, it's it dries out a bit quicker? Well... Less frequently is better because your microbiology is giving a chance to be able to colonize. And when you have a soil that doesn't hold any water then when you water it, it's you're actually losing your microbiology. They're out of the bottom of your pot or into your subsoils. So, you know, it's really good to have good water retention, but we believe in layers. So there's different layers. Some of them are water retention layers and some of them aren't. And another one may be rocky and another I mean, one may be this. Then. So then the roots can make a decision you know, on where they are and maybe if they want some dryness that they're going to be able to find it in a layer that has more aeration and if they want more water then they're going to be able to find it in an area that has more moisture. Yeah, I mean your your soil has to drain. There has to be a good, mm -hmm. you know, cation exchange and there has to be good, you know, aeration in there and aerobic, you know, qualities and, and breath, you know, in the soil and everything. Hydrogen and carbon. So, you know, we, we, we do build our soils, though, to retain water. And we think that's important because water is a huge commodity on Earth. And there's a ton of areas that are in drought. And that's just a reaction. So I think anything that we can do to build, you know, soils to save water, even if it's indoors, I think it makes all the sense in the world. And I do think it saves your microbiology to, to stay wet, but dry out all the time. Your biology has to like wake up and go to sleep all the time. And that doesn't truly serve the rhizosphere. Okay. And so what's your thoughts on rock dusts? And I'm wondering, and do you believe they're as vital to the soil as some people make them out to be? Well, I, I know that Steve Solomon has talked about rock dust over the years a lot. And he said that he's, you know, not seen a good balance out of a true glacial rock dust. That's a true balance um, in the stuff. So, you know, we've always used different rock dust that were available, you know, maybe the paramagnetic rock dust, basalt, or, or, you know, glacial rock dust, and you can use a little bit of, you know, those powders. But really, you know, our, our main mission in life is to try and get the minerals from our plant life in right. our in our area. And that's, so our, our big thing is, once again, it goes back to building soils. So our big thing is to try and is to, to think about the trees and the different stuff, the ways that we can build the soil to get minerals in. So. And in each different, you know, different plant species uptake different types of minerals. And you know that certain plants are rich in certain types of minerals. And if you're looking for that in your garden, why not feed your biomass 
all of those minerals and then cut your biomass down and then feed that to your garden because then your biomass has a long time to be able to uptake it and the bio microbiology in the soil has more time to uptake it. So we really believe in if you're going to bring in rock dust or if you're going to bring in, you know, ocean salts or, or, or different things that might make sense and have a lot of mineral content, feed it to your biomass rather than feeding it directly to your plants and your soil because then it just makes an easier exchange into your soils of what you want to grow. If you can get dehydrated ocean water, I mean, it has, you know, 84 trace minerals in it and stuff, but, you know, oceans are really toxic in the world right now so you'd have to have a toxicity report you know if you're going to use any of that and mines are are so sketchy you know we really again you need to look at from where all of the inputs are coming from we know that we're reaching a phosphorus ceiling right now because of rock phosphate on the planet and all of those mines that they've totally depleted and now all of the big ag that's totally dependent on it you know, and people are feeling like, oh, without it, what the heck are we going to do? This is the only way that we know how to get phosphorus. Well, it's a really shitty way to get phosphorus, truthfully, because it's being mined. And all of the people that work down in the mines, what kind of health problems are they having? I, I, you know, if you just start looking at all of it, it's like we've overthought ourselves. Humans do that consistently. We're, we just have like this big you know, ability to mess up stuff. And this is just a perfect example of, of that we have to go and get mined material from somewhere else to be able to get our mineral content. I mean, if you're building an indoor soil from, you know, cocoa, coir and stuff, I mean, you have to have something. For sure. So you might as well get, you know, as many different kinds of dusts as you possibly can. You know what I mean? And, and that are and, consciously, and you know what I mean? Like, Mine. glacial rock dust in our area there's there's tons of it and then right. and, and there's there's tons of volcanic ash and there's tons of you know basalt you know core um, you know basalt that doesn't take you know very much to create powder out of so there there are areas where it can make sense and we and we really encourage people when they're making these soils and we do work with people that have to make soils from scratch is to what kind of native soil in their area can you mix into that that's going to have all of those, you know, minerals already there. And it doesn't mean, you know, you can make a soil that's intelligent enough that it will be able to unlock that, um, you know, all of those minerals pretty easily. So, again, just being conscious about where all your dusts and things are coming from. Yeah. So... This is going to be a bit of a weird question, but it's just kind of when we were mentioning Steve Solomon, it jumped to mind. But Steve's got this idea that he he thinks that you can use nutrient density as kind of like a, an overall parameter to quantifiably test things on their quality. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm right when I say this, but I think if you asked him, he would say something like, if you got two different bits of cannabis and you tested the nutrient density between them, he regards nutrient density as that quantifiable kind of a parameter. And so he says, you know, if you just tested a whole bunch of cannabis, the one with the highest nutrient density is going to be like the most enjoyable, so to speak, uh, put aside maybe personal preferences. Do you have any thoughts along those lines or would you maybe disagree with that? And I guess maybe overall, do you think there is like a one quantifiable parameter we can use for testing? Um. I don't think I think you could utilize a lot of things, you know, as much little things that you have in your basket to help you out along the way, little tidbits of information or little testing things that you have along the way is great. But 
absolutely believe in that idea. You know, the healthier your plant is, the better it's going to taste as far as food is concerned. Your medicine is definitely going to be better, <clears throat> more terpene rich. The plant was able to fully express itself in health. You know, the BRICS reading is something that I know that he utilizes. We utilize BRICS testing here. Refractometer. Uh, a refractometer to test the sugars and stuff in the plant. And We analyze our plants in as many ways as possible under microscopes and leaves, and we analyze it through pests. You know, knowing whether your your plant's getting eaten by a pest is one way of seeing whether it's healthy or not. Mm -hmm. So and some pests we're finding like aphids and stuff have been attracted to healthy plants. So there's always an exception. But, you know, a lot of times, um, you know, a healthy plant repels pests and that's the goal of it and stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah, definitely health. Health and well-being of the plant is going to be the, the Looking the best at the plant. plant and seeing it vibrate and seeing its its leaves extended out and not constricted. I mean, you know, there's that's the the the, the like the, the emotional touch that goes into looking at it. Right there. So, kind of on the same topic, we we referenced it earlier and I was going to bring it up, but I forgot to. But I was talking to Jeremy and from Builder Soil and he said that one thing he was interested in is that there's the development of new organic IPM-based products. A lot of them have microbes in them. You could look at one, say, um, EM5, perfect example, you know, microbial-based uh, IPM product. The interesting thing about it was he was mentioning that when people undergo testing, these same probiotics like the, the CFUs, the colony-forming units, get counted all the same and you can fail tests because of it. Is that something which kind of is a bit concerning to you? Like the fact that I, I guess maybe we're not able to use microbial products in an IPM remedy to, you know, in that way or do you think that there's a way around it? What's concerning about it is the testing. Um, the testing is what's failing us. It's not it's not the problem of what we're spraying on it. And, and if we're utilizing a nice IPFM, we always add the F in there because it's integrated pest and fungal management program. Um, uh, it just it, it's like it adds. I forgot what I was going with that. Um, what were you just talking about? The testing. Oh, right. The, issue, yeah. right, the testing. Sorry. Thank you. I was like off on another tangent there. Um, <laughs> is is that they're not testing the differentiation between well, the can. DNA. So yeah. they, well, they, they can, can they right. can, but it's a very expensive test to be able to find out, you know, if it's a bacteria spore, is it a bacteria spore that's healthy for you or is it a bacteria spore that's unhealthy for you? And they're just doing a full round spectrum of just like putting it all together in one basket. And they're just saying it's all fruit, even if it could have like, you know, 50 different species of fruit and some of them could even be poisonous to you. They're just saying it's all fruit. And if there's any fruit in the basket, then, you know, it's no good. If there's any type of microbiology, even dust spores that are perfectly fine and healthy, we breathe them in all the time, you know, that it's going to fail a test. Yeah. So the problem is really the testing the problem is not so we we're trying to get well, smarter big, to the test, this but a, this is a huge conversation yeah. in the industry right now. Several states have let go of the microbiology, um, the microbe counts. This is what it's called, yeah, microbe well, that's the counts. Thing. You have to. Like, we talk about testing a lot because you know that's what like the the recreational scene brings, and that's what farmers have to deal with. So the answer is, if you have um, a microbial test that you have to pass then you can fail that microbial test from using healthy, beneficial probiotic organisms. Mm -hmm. So does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. But the answer is you can fail your test with those things. So you, if you, you live 
in an area where you have to basically pass the test. I mean, you have to do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. So a lot of but people will is it stop healthy spraying. for you to use bacillus, you know, strains and and even and trichoderma, trichoderma and, and other you know things on your on your plant? Absolutely, for foliar? Of, course, of course yeah. it is. EM five is it is it beneficial for you? Yes. Does so it does it make a better flower? Absolutely. Yeah, and and I think that we've touched on this already, but I'll say it again. I mean, our body needs to be able to process dust and and probiotics and and without like to having a sterilized product for our body, it does our immune system no good. It does our health no good. So those laws are prohibitive laws put in place to make it damn near impossible for an organic farmer. To, to, to do what they have to do. And it puts out the, the differentiation of what is the word clean to you. You know, is clean, hospital clean? Is it a sterile clean? Because some of the worst, most horrific diseases come out of that high, you know, parentheses, you know, clean. So it's just a really interesting topic. Clean, the way that we see it, is beneficial microbiology everywhere that you're dealing with, you know, beneficial microbiology that if a pathogen is even coming in the door at all, it can't come in because, you know, there's totally so many beneficials that are holding it back. To us, that's clean. You could even taunt the pathogen because you're so strong with good microbiology. You could taunt it. Yeah, and and it would never, you know, be a part or, or, or come in as a pathogen. Yeah, I think that's a great way to kind of, uh, I don't know, visualize the situation or approach the situation. I noticed on the site it says you have had, you know, really extensive range of trialing various different mycorrhizae and microbial products. Is there any kind of little tips or tricks you've learned throughout that process you'd be willing to share with us, you know, like certain things which maybe indicate you've got a good microbe product beyond the obvious, you know, like are there certain things you can kind of, um, you know, share from your both trial and error with all the different microbial products? Well, it's really fun to get a microscope. We really encourage people to get a microscope. I mean, you just learn so much when you start to enter that world of, you know, little things. You don't so have to be a professor a, no. or anything like that in order to get a microscope. You can just learn after you get the microscope and just start seeing. Yeah, and you don't have to buy out. an expensive microscope. You can buy, you know, one that is used for like high school or finishing school science class or it's, something like that. There's so much out there and you can actually look at the teas that you make. You can look at the soil that you're making and also looking at the plant and what kind of reaction, you know, of course that you said, you know, under, except the obvious, that's, that's the most obvious is how does your plant react? Because unfortunately, you know, these department of agriculture regulations and big ag are going to be giving so much different information you know if you go on threads out there in the cannabis world whoa the the crazy stuff that's flying around is just difficult for people to determine so you know do your own science learn your own ways you know well define your intuition in your own gardens that's going to be the best way to find out if products are working for you and you can trust good companies like ours and others that have been tried and tested through the community i mean the community does not stick with companies that don't have integrity so a lot of the companies that have been around for a long time are around because they have 
you know, they our our products have been tested by you know a million different people. So. And and there's so many other companies out there with with beautiful integrity. You know, we really you know, want to highlight, you know, those farms that are making good products and also those companies that are making good products for the farms, you know, we're out there and there's lots of us and we're all over the world. Yeah, most certainly. And I, I so strongly agree with that, that final point about, you know, like the community doesn't trust brands without integrity. And I think you can look at that, especially if you look at, you know, the people who are using your products, it's some of the most um, you know, like the leaders of the industry, but also the, not just the leaders, you know, but the ones who are viewed with integrity themselves. So, you know, it's almost like a twofold. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and that's just exchanging And that was a big part of this culture to begin with. It's just word of mouth and, and everything. And so. trusting in each other. Yeah. yeah. So something I wanted to run by you is, what's your thoughts on throwing mycorrhiza into a tea, specifically before you brew it? Because... You know, in the I, I refer to it as the Bible of organic gardening. You know, teeming with microbes by Jeff. He says very, very clearly in the book. You know, if if mycorrhiza doesn't come in contact with a root within twenty four hours, it dies. And so I always see people throwing mycorrhiza into their teas, and then they're going to bubble it for presumably at least twenty four hours. And I'm like, does that not all just die? It makes no sense. It will. It, a lot of them will become dormant, and they'll just sit in there until they reach a root, if they do. So it really doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you definitely want direct contact onto that root. And one of the best ways to get direct contact is because so many of our gardens were growing fast plants and we're having fast turnover with cannabis plants is that your cover crop can grow the endomycorrhiza on it and it can propagate it. So when you're feeding your soils, different types of mycorrhiza, make sure that you put, you know, great cover crops like clover is an awesome one for it's so many cover crops. I could go on and on and they're going to help propagate it for your, your cannabis plants. So that's one of the beauties of really utilizing a lot of different species in your garden. So you, you can put mycorrhizal spores in water and drench it into your soil mm-hmm. that is an application that does work it's oh it's not going to be as good as direct contact it's direct contact that really you know propagates the the, the spore to come to life but um we always suggest to people that if they're going to do a tea brew do the tea brew and then just put the mycorrhiza in like right at the last second right before you're about ready to drench your gardens and that's a that's a good application yeah, that's that's definitely what I always thought was like kind of the optimal. Yeah, it does not grow in 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 an aeration setting. So another little point I wanted to swing by that Jeff made in one of his uh, Verde Natural talks was that he said that there'd been some kind of you know newer discovery around how it was just kind of one of the subspecies of myco that was responsible for the bulk of the work. And I think he said it was the the glomerous type. Do you know anything about that? And I mean, like, if so, would we not expect all myco to switch to that one subtype essentially? Well, the glomus intradices is the one that's been known to be the, the, supposedly the one that, um, you know, communicates and, and bonds with cannabis roots. Do, from our point of view, I mean, fungi is made like to break the rules i mean there there are no rules there's the most adaptogenic when you when it comes to you know petri dishes and science and and maybe like soilless mediums and different things like that you know if you're in a soilless indoor medium and you're just getting like two month cycle or 
something you're not going to get a lot out of a two-month cycle with mycorrhiza. It kind of has to live longer than that to be truly beneficial to the root zone. But, um, you know, um, diverse microorganisms communicate with each other in garden settings. So, you know, we we have four different ones that we work with right now, and we just always enhance that type of mycorrhizal growth in our gardens just because we know that all the answers are not there. And biodiversity is so incredibly important in your garden. So, you know, being able to have, you know, the classic endomycorrhiza, um, you know, that that's out there in the market that's grown organically and consciously, which is really important, can also speak to the other root zones that's going yeah. on in your gardens, which is just it's like your to- cover crop. And, 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 and I don't know, you know, the, the whole thing of just that it's singular species. Mm, I, I'm not really sure of that yet. I can't it's say one to- way or the other. It just doesn't make sense of nature at all. It goes against all of nature's rules where she's just like so full of diversity um, why is it that we're separating out and concentrating and, and isolating? And the more that we do that, we bring it away from its nature, which really doesn't involve the entourage effect of, of everything of that's going on in the rhizosphere. And I mean, it's been proven that, you know, inner, that species of different different types communicate with each other and share food, like a pine tree can share food with a birch tree and <clears throat> there's no like law in there that says that they can do that, but they do it. So enhancing, you know, biodiversity in your gardens is a big part of cannabis growing and you would want to enhance as much different species as possible. So they can communicate with each other. So did that make sense? I mean, yeah, you can just get a glomus intradices and put it in there and yeah, you could just be off to the races with that one. But I think in life, we should try and get, you know, more dynamics happening than that. Okay. And so, I mean, I guess the thing I'm interested in is overall, you would kind of say that you don't think that you would get better results from just exclusively using the one? Yeah, we think that diversity is key in all yeah. aspects. Diversity in microbiology and diversity in, in nutrients <coughs> is, is key. Can you guys hear my cat meowing? <laughs> okay, great. Sorry, I just had to make sure. Otherwise, I was like, I've got to go tell it to go away. Um, so, yeah, oh, she's she's got a mouth on her, I'll tell you that. Um, so, something I saw on your site, which I was super interested in because I am a self-professed coffee addict. You guys say that, you know, it's a bit taxing on the adrenal system. You're not so into it for that reason. Do you guys think, you know, like that there are actually some long-term negatives if, you know, kind of bludgeon your body with coffee over a long period of time? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it stimulates the parasympathetic nervous system. And if your parasympathetic nervous system is stimulated all the time, which unfortunately, you know, everything that we do is stimulating that, you know, nervous system and then it starts to drain the adrenals. And when you give your body a false sense of stimulant, then it starts to kick into action, you know, that the, all of those different systems, which makes a depression in the immune system. And then you have things over a long period of time that, you know, just start breaking down. The other thing about coffee is that it's incredibly acidic. And, um, you know, if you're drinking it often, then it's really changing the acidity of your body. 
and, you know, more alkalinity, uh, you know, contains more beneficial microbiology than acidity. So if you're constantly acidifying your body, then you're not only killing beneficial microbiology, but you're also breeding pathogens. Yeah, wow. And so the the solution to this, well, maybe not the direct solution, but, you know, in, instead you guys have the cacao and mushroom kind of tea you make. How did you stumble across that one? Uh, we just, you know, we work really long. Mycology. Yeah, yeah. Mycology has yeah. been a really important thing in our lives. We've been mushroom collecting for a long time and health and well-being has been, you know, a big part of what we do and also incredibly long hours of work. We well, put a lot into, you know, our property here on our farm. We put a lot into the education that we put out to other people. We put a lot into our business and we need something that is going to work for us long time. Josh and I have always been joking that we're just in training to be 90 year olds. Um, <laughs> so we just want to make sure that, you know, everything that we're putting into our body is going to have incredible longevity. It's going to be adaptogenic and it's going to decide what our body needs rather than depressing it and we 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 recognize you know the first thing that you drink in the day you know really kind of sets the tone for your body for the rest of the day so we are you know have been really wanting to drink something really powerful and potent for our body so every morning you know we're drinking the, the raw cacao with you know the medicinal mushrooms in there we're just slowly building up our immune system with the mushrooms every day and it doesn't drop us you know in in energy levels later in the day so it's kind of like our secret sear it's like our secret recipe and like our secret life force is just to smoke doobies and drink cocoa all day <laughs> and, and work on the farm and, you know, and then have a, a good meal in the afternoon you know and it's like a, it's like a good way to live um recently we've been you know making new recipes with um our essential six which is six medicinal mushrooms and making a golden milk which has the turmeric um cinnamon ginger black and uh, black pepper and it's then other adaptogenic chinese we've herbs. also um fallen in love with moringa over the years so my my kind of big secret thing, not secret, my big like thing that I love lately is just moringa, our golden milk, the dragonfly earth medicine, golden milk, and uh, the cacao together. And this, and, oh, and maca. Well, and we drink nettle tea all day too during the season that it's nettles, and then we'll drink comfrey tea during the we're season that it's comfrey. Drinking, and... We're drinking superfoods all day long, essentially, yeah. and we love the antioxidants. Both my my dad died of cancer. Kelly's mom battled cancer her whole uh, a, a long time, and, and and she beat it though. Yeah, and uh, but we so we've been you know propelled on health um, through that, and uh, you know also our way of life. So you know it's again that's a representation of our lifestyle. Yeah, that's that's so awesome to hear. And do you guys kind of advocate for people to look into, say, maybe taking medicinal mushrooms on like a regular kind of schedule thing? Or do you think maybe not that broadly applicable to everyone? Yeah, I think everyone. that it's important. Everyone. Um, it, they're adaptogens, which means that they go into your body and they decide what it is that you need. You know, they're sort of like a higher intelligent being. Mycology breaks all the rules. Fungi breaks all the rules. You know, um, fruiting bodies, you know, are here to help us. You know, they they exudate 
uh, CO2 and intake oxygen, just like we are, we do. So they're just sort of an interesting anomaly. And we, we know that prolonged use of mushrooms is what's the best. So you're not going to really notice a difference if you start doing mushrooms for a week. You'll definitely notice an energy um, increase. Absolutely. You'll notice a, a more mental um, increase. You know, your words will come to you quicker. You, you'll have sort of like, you know, a better memory base immediately. But the long-term effects are, you know, over a long period of time. And we feel like years of mushroom use is, is what people need to be doing. And let's, let's, let's get more specific. I mean, chaga is you know one of the most powerful if not the most powerful antioxidant of any herb on earth as we know it it has more sod's in it which is superoxide dismutase which is a longevity enzyme it's got one of the most you know highest amounts of longevity enzymes in it um the siberian shamans you know have done a, a tremendous amount of work in in teaching the world about it and russian and and korean um chinese you know have done a ton of of work on medicinal mushrooms um cordyceps builds um your blood and and builds uh oxygen in your blood and you know there's they've been used by olympic athletes for years um to enhance their performance you know in their daily routines of working out and everything so um, there's a lot of, you know, the agaricon works with the lungs and, and, and also nootropic medicine is, is, is part of what mushrooms are. And, and nootropic means that it generates um, cell life. So it, it helps you. It's a smart drug. Particularly in the brain. <coughs> so it helps generate brain cells um, and also, yeah, helps generate the mechanism for the cell to be able to propagate itself in a memory of a healthy cell rather than in a memory of a non-healthy cell. Cause that's, that's the goal is that, you know, in cancer or any kind of malaise or people that have ailments, it's that the cell is reproducing and it will reproduce a, an ailing cell or it will reproduce a healthy cell. So what is it that you're going to be able to give your body the memory of reproducing a healthy cell? And we feel like mushrooms really help give that much higher intelligent intelligence of the body to be able to produce the healthier cell. Cause we know that nothing fights cancer other than the immune system. Of course, cancer can be diminished along with everything else through chemotherapy and radiation, but the immune system is the only thing that transforms cancer cells into healthy cells again. And that's something across the board. And we also went into, you know, we were talking about the intelligence of trees and a lot of these medicinal mushrooms come from trees and they're taking all of the minerals and all of the intelligence and they're growing directly off the tree. And we can't eat the entire tree, but we can eat the mushroom that's coming off of that tree. And it has all of the nutrients that that tree has. So like chaga comes off of a tree and agaricon comes and off of a tree tail, and the lion's mane and the turkey tail. So many are, are wood-loving um, mushrooms. And, and we live in a toxic environment in general. You know, we're just, it's just the way it is, and it's fine. You know, we, we have toxins around us, so we should be ingesting things that rid ourselves of those pathogens, you know, of the free radicals, and, and that's what mushrooms do. We raised our son like this. He's a professional athlete, you know, so, you know, it works. That's awesome to hear. Yeah, I definitely believe that. Something I wanted to touch on, though, 
Bodhi made a comment about how he, he loves to do both gardening as well as breeding while under the influence of psychedelic mushrooms. Is this something you guys have experimented with at all? And did you find it was productive or maybe counterproductive? Extremely productive. Some of the most important information that we've gotten from the plants, one of the most life-changing experiences that have ever happened to me have been in my greenhouse with my plants on psychedelics. You know, it cuts through stuff. It, it, it leads you, it, it, it breaks the veils and it gets you to the point of importance. It puts aside the ego and, and what you think is happening. And it really allows you to see what is happening. I feel like responsible use of psychedelics is absolutely imperative. And, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, that kind of use could be checking out. We call it checking in and checking in is so important, especially when it comes to nature. You know, these mushrooms have a higher intelligence that they're they're there to teach us. They've helped transform our whole entire evolution as we know it to begin with. So, you know, and and psychedelics for some is like, oh, a big scary thing. And psychedelics really shouldn't be. They should be thought of as as um, insight into spirituality. I mean, nothing in this world is easy to to explain so having insight you know makes a lot of sense and microdosing is something that you know a lot of people are doing nowadays and so it's a lot it's it's something that people are really checking in on and you know you can create medicine where you're just microdosing and having a little bit of a a check-in and it can be extremely not only positive for gardening it can be extremely positive on your well-being and you're you know some people have problems with depression or anxiety or attention deficit disorder and sometimes it's just a neurological connection that they PTSD. need PTSD yeah. yeah so many so we 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 highly suggest it once again know your source um mushrooms in particular um take up a lot of toxins from the environment um so know your source in that area but yeah it's a good check in yeah nice i dig it and so you kind of answered it, but just to get a final clarification, I had someone talking to me saying that like they were mixing in like, I, the, I'm just going to say cubescences or whatever, like just because, you know, it just jumps to mind, like a micro dose of that with say like their regular dose of lion's mane, thing like that. And what they said was that it was, they felt like it was acting as like a potentiator. Do you think that's the case? Or maybe it was like they were just maybe feeling some of the effects of the cubes or whatever it was they mixed in there? I mean, you know, mushrooms are a catalyst. They're a catalyst for all different types of well-being. They're a catalyst for mineral uptake in our body. They're a catalyst for so many things. And cubensis is is one that, you know, is sort of a master of the mushrooms in in the way that when we take it and how we perceive the world. So that wouldn't surprise me at all that it's a catalyst for the uptake of the nutrients as well as a cognitive understanding of it biologically, you know, and when you mix it with Chinese herbs and you mix it with other different adaptogenic herbs, then you're going to get full spectrum uptake. And we don't, you know, we, we do do lipid extraction concentrates with our CBD and we would never do that without a huge array of mushrooms and different adaptogenic roots and and herbs. Mm Non-psychedelic. Non-psychedelic for that. Yeah. But um, as far as the psychedelic um, ones go, it, it makes sense to use them with other herbs for sure that support your 
your system while mm-hmm. you're in that mm-hmm. that state. And we do know that that's hard on your liver, so you have to have things that are supportive of you know um, the uptake of the toxins as well. Yeah. So, question that's a little off topic, but I remember I think you've even said it a few times in a few different little talks that you kind of wanted to remain like kind of like a mom and pop type of company where you were still really hands on with things. Is that still the case? And do you foresee that, you know, like a point where you ever might expand your network beyond, say, what you could physically deal with? Or is it very core to you to, to remain kind of that hands-on approach? It's awesome because we are expanding and we're expanding through other farms and they're expanding through us and the knowledge is being passed on from one farm to the next. And it's just becoming like we're able to almost be everywhere and the information is able to be everywhere. And that's the real power. And I mean, hands-on experience. Yes, absolutely. It's just totally important to us to have relationships with people and community. And we feel like this is a way that we can have relationship with a greater, wider international community is through like-minded and like-practicing cultivators and extractors and business people and yeah, I mean, we, we've not taken on major distributors or major investors in any way with our company. And so, no, it's not a goal for won. us. It's not a goal for us to sell our company to, you know, say a global distributor type mm-hmm. thing and, you know, get it into every grocery store worldwide. Mm-mm. You know, do we, you know, would do we want a successful company? Yeah. do You know, if it happened to where it all went into all the grocery stores and it was somehow a magical, and all in beautiful a magical hands. you know, an organic, uh, you know, expansion. Yes, we want that. Which is what it is now. Um, you know, like Josh had mentioned really, you know, briefly, I we don't integrity. do any, we don't do any marketing, marketing like at all. We haven't spent any money ever on marketing because we just feel like pass the information on and then the good information will rise to the top. And, and, you know, it's more important for us to be walking forward with integrity than walking forward with anything else and, and having the voice of the plant, you know, always in our mind and, and being able to share that voice so that other people can also have it within their integrity and their intention as they, you know, grow their flowers in their gardens. So this is kind of a, an interesting one because we've been talking a lot about the immune system, about the plant's immune system, the human immune system. I'm really interested in, you know, I, I call them the immunomodulators. That's kind of, I guess, more of like a, a human term for these types of molecules. But things which activate the SAR response, systemic acquired resistance, like your chitin, your salicylic acid, jasminic acid, these types of things. What are your thoughts on these ones? Do you kind of play around with insect frass or chitin or any of these kind of immuno boosters for the plant? And do you advocate for them? Well, interestingly enough, one of the highest forms of natural chitin that comes through the plant form is in a mushroom. So we utilize lots of mushrooms. We utilize mushrooms as biomass. You know, we chop up some of the tree mushrooms that we have here that we would use in a medicinal lipid compound, you know, that we make here and also put it into our teas. So chitin is definitely something that we utilize. We utilize white willow bark. Um, We make it here on the property. We put that in our teas for the acetosilic acid. Um, You know, we always look for the plants yet again for growing on the property and yeah and we're always looking towards the plants to give that information to us because if we're feeding plants we feel like 
plants understand plants the best. They communicate the best with each other. So we're looking for the plant version of it. You know, we don't get the, the other part of it, like the powderized version. And what's interesting is all the pharmaceutical companies that have had like hexane extraction on a lot of these, you know, say aspirin. I mean, it originally came from a plant or all of these different compounds that we see in pharmacies and, and also, you know, vitamin supplements. They originally came from plants. And we've also, we've, we've made them like synthetic to where our body can't necessarily break it down. So that's why, you know, plants and teas and these things are just so incredibly powerful for boosting the immune, the immune response. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Have you actually done any like toying around yourself, so to speak, with uh, like chitin and its effects on the immune system? Because I know it was used in uh, traditional Chinese medicine for a long time, but I couldn't really find any clear evidence of whether it was like, you know, because it's not, it's not offered as like a supplement. So I kind of was thinking, I don't know how effective it is. Well, right now it is being offered as a supplement. There's a lot more uh, things coming out now with cricket powder. So you can you can buy cricket powder, and um, they're taking crickets and that are problems in areas, and they're turning it into a supplement. And I think that that's great. One thing that we know for certain is that you know there's been test studies done in India, and they couldn't really figure out why is it that certain Jane regions, you know, that only eat certain vegetables and, and certain types of beans and this sort of thing, why is it that their B12 rates were still pretty high in their blood counts? You know, where is it that they were getting that B12 to be able to uptake it? And after, you know, several years of research and study, it was all of the small bugs that are in the grains and in the lentils that they're eating every day. So that's a, a perfect example of, you know, that sort of like bug and insect, we call those macrobes, can you I, know, can be a part of our diet as well as our as our plants diet. Yeah. Makes sense, right? Just the holistic approach. So you know you feel free to you know we can cut this one out if you don't want to answer it because it's i don't know is maybe not in your style but i've noticed that there's kind of like this cyclical wave of like fad products on the market and like the one that jumps to mind to me is like fulvic acid you know fulvic acid's always been around but recently we had like the shilajit surge and you know it kind of came back with a force and then it's died off again and what what's your experience with the fad products like are there any ones where you see it just like so my example was the fulvic acid where it's like you know it's just a basic product but it just keeps getting recycled and rebranded and you know kind of i guess maybe tricking some people who aren't familiar that most of the time it's it's just fulvic acid in that in that example do you have any kind of products which jump to mind which are like this for you where you know like they get this surge of popularity and it's like it's just the same thing that's always been there well we i think they will probably pass on that question because we wouldn't want to you know point out you know, a name of a product and then maybe put that down or make a fad of it. You know what I mean? I think that it's important that, you know, in, in, it's all about the evolution. in the way, that, yeah, it's about the evolution. And, and again, the, the community gets to decide. So there are going to be lots of things thrown at the community and how is it that the community is going to sift through it is more important than focusing on the company that put out some kind of a fad product. It will be up to the community to decide on what's going to have the longevity yeah, of course. And so, are you familiar with uh, tricantinol or tricontinol, however you want to pronounce it, um, like the, the natural growth hormone? 
You mean alfalfa? You mean alfalfa? Yeah, yeah. So definitely in that. Um, so what? The, my question is basically, there's now like more refined versions of it coming out and it's kind of slowly getting some traction in the market as far as I can see. Have you looked into those more purified versions? Because obviously a lot of people maybe knowingly or not engage in it through alfalfa top dresses, things like that. But what about a really kind of purified version would you be in favor of that if it worked similarly or is it kind of you know down that same school of thought we don't engage in well the 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 idea of it really would be is how is it purified how is it concentrated and really you you get such high levels in super healthy really awesome alfalfa and if you're only going to use it once, you know, you know, one time a cycle or you're going to use it two times for a whole cycle, well, you can use alfalfa in every one of your feedings. And that's just going to be prolonged over time. It really goes back to, you know, sometimes we overthink ourselves. Sometimes yeah. the basic raw whole food is really what's best for us more often rather than less often and a bunch of, you know, prepackaged stuff in between. And then people are going to want gibberellic acid because it makes their plants grow you know super tall and yeah you know you might just find out that you can just use your urine <laughs> with, with water and and you'd be like oh my god this works a hundred times better than anything i've gotten from the store i mean seriously it feels like we could go right back to the basics on almost everything and it really works better <laughs> it just does. So no, we're not really down with all the uh, the new and improved. Not saying that there's not a place for evolution and not saying that there's not a place for all things and all good times. You know what I mean? It's just um, we constantly look towards nature to be our mentor. So maybe what we'll find is a new biomass bush to grow. You know, maybe we'll find a new... <laughs> you know, tree that, that blooms all summer for the bees. Now, now I'm talking, now we're talking about a product. You know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah, totally. A, a, a grass that propagates mycorrhiza, you know what I mean? Like now, now let's talk, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So this is a bit of a weird one, but a lot of people commonly will say that you can't do kind of like a no-till type of philosophy unless you're in a certain size pot i think the commonly uh, reference number is about 30 liters or so do you do you drive with that like do you think people using small pots can successfully underdo kind of nutrient cycling and the the concepts of what no-till is advocating or do you think there is that requirement for a certain size pot i don't like to limit people you know yeah. but uh you know it's going to work better in a bigger pot and and but and the plant's going to grow better Plants going to grow better in a bigger pod and a plant's going to grow better in a bigger bed, you know, and it's easier to keep your biology happy. There's options, you know, mm -hmm. but, There's... but some people only have small pots and if that's, and if this is the introduction that they're getting for them to be able to grow really awesome medicine to share with your friends or, you know, if they're needing it, then that's awesome. And like Josh said, we just really don't want to limit you just do your very best there's you, so much conversation out there right now on what the word regenerative is you know for us it's like if you're creating more balances than checks you're doing good and we all can't just automatically have some closed loop regenerative farm where everything is just running perfectly you know some of us have to start in a closet with a couple of you know one gallon pots do your best
Yeah, do I mean, your you'd best have, you'd have there. to have really small plants for that. You know, if you were going to do, you know, a small pot, you'd have to have really small plants. Otherwise, the roots would colonize the root zone too much and it would just it would choke out the life that you're trying to do in a prolonged environment. So, you know, the smaller pot you have, the more, you know, thought out intention you're going to have to put into it. Yeah. You have a little bit more room, you know, if in a bed, you know. Yeah, it's like a safety net in a way, isn't it? It is. Oh, it's a huge safety net. We always say that, you know, a soilless medium is like the plant uptaking through an IV. And then uh, a plant, a a soil that just has a little teeny tiny bit in it is somebody who, you know, a person that may have, you know, not a very good digestive tract. But when you have big heaping soil piles and you've been working on it for a really long time it's the same as that person that you would call that has an iron gut that they can take anything and you can throw anything at that person and they're not allergic to it they've got nothing because they have such a tremendous amount of microbiology and that's it you know the more you build your microbiology the more you're going to be able to throw at it the least amount of microbiology be very careful what you throw at it because your plant can't understand it it. balance yeah yeah, I can definitely see that. So on a lot of your products, they're used for, for teas and for top dressings. However, I have seen the odd person just using it as a straight soil amendment, just mixing it in or like kind of like a revitalization thing after a cycle. Do you find you get pretty much the same results doing that or do you kind of, you know, if possible, advocate for them to be used as teas or like the way maybe you marketed it? It's just valuable, you know. Any, so you, anyway, yeah, it's fine. It, it's, an, it's an absolutely amazing soil additive. It, it's just phenomenal what, what the roots do with it. And even in, in, and it's really even just, just in the transplant. And know. it's really not just, you know, our products. It's the idea of just bringing in green material into your soils, you know, making sure that you've got some herbal compounds and some plant material in there more than just kelp. Like take all your sun leaves from your previous harvest and put them in your soil. Mm -hmm. And that just really helps increase the bacteria, you know, breakdown. And then, then the bacteria then starts to feed the fungi. It's just, you know, when you up it all, it's best. And in nature, you know, when you go to the most beautiful, pristine forest, it has varying amounts of decomposition from the leaves all around it and that's something that's really easy to mimic in your garden and it's easy to mimic even in your first soil mixes you could mimic you can mimic that by adding more leaf material yeah okay i think that's actually something people are a little scared of at least mixing it into the soil i mean i'm I'm a bit i don't mind top dressing but yeah i think there is a little bit of yeah i don't know what the word is better than yeah, like really mixing it in, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We utilize all well, of the, our hash leftovers, you know, all of the green material from our hash. We make sure to make it at a time that we're mixing our soil for, for our, our nurseries. Nursery. So, you know, we make sure that that's all like cyclical and all that green fresh material just goes right in and it's amazing. Even carrot pulp. We'll, yeah. we'll be making carrot juice and we'll put carrot pulp in there too and it can be really good. Just the idea that you can utilize so much different vegetation to help spark your soil. Yeah, definitely. So we kind of indirectly touched on this question, but I just wanted to get the final ruling on it. What type of IPM or sorry, IPFM methods do you guys use throughout 
uh, kind of the more flowering phases if you had uh, an infestation let's just say a mite you know a lot of people kind of deal with that what are the types of things you'd be looking to use or to like you know kind of philosophies to utilize if you're if you're in flowering cycle which is always the most difficult definitely bringing your rooms up to 120 degrees fahrenheit 50 degrees celsius um kills all thin uh, exoskeleton mites as well as aphids they'll literally explode so utilizing heat treatment is fantastic but making sure that your root zone is damp and well fed because your roots need to stay very moist and they need to stay cool and it's not it's not heating up your indoor rooms through lights. You can't have your lights on high and heat it up that much because the pores of the leaves are going to open. And when the pores of the leaves are open, they're very susceptible to like UV light. In greenhouses, you can get it up to 120, no problem. It's really easy. Um, you can watch the buds actually swell. You'll get more yield. We're, we're really noticing that. You're, the resin is really coming out, and you're being able to kill off really the thin exoskeleton. You'll be killing off your predators as well, but you put your predators on afterwards. It certainly doesn't kill things like wasps, you know, and, and plants love 50 degrees. You know, people say, oh, is that so hot? Well, you look at where they, the plants actually come from and, and the season that they grow in. They just love heat. So it's not something that is going to bother stay in your room have a glass of water for you and you're sort of like taking a sauna either in your greenhouse or in your room or wherever you are to try to reach that 50 degrees and we use uh, swirsky and cucumeris um in together for broad mites and russet mites um and um you know a persimilis or californicus or andersoni for uh the spider mites and to have a good predator um, colony on your plants allows you to not have to use the sprays. So and 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 usually use like two to three times the amount that they that they suggest to you. And um, and but not two to three times as often. Just no. two to three times the amount. So you do the heat treatment if you're infested in later flower. You do the heat treatment, and then you just bombard your room with predators and hopefully you know you've got enough enough time that um, the predators will eat all of the rest that's there and then they just leave they're not interested in staying on your plants they don't colonize on the plants they don't breed on cannabis plants they're just going in and they're eating so a lot of people worry about oh geez am I smoking predators no they're eating and then they're leaving yeah so that's just really helpful and we love the use of predators. And, and in vegetative times, if there's an outbreak, we love botanical washes and not utilizing, you know, essential oils or volatile oils in heavy amounts. You know, I don't really like my skin covered in heavy oil, neither do the leaves. But if you want to, you know, wash them, you can take fresh neem leaf and fresh rosemary or fresh, you know, um, eucalyptus or fresh lavender and make a nice tea brew and steep it with horsetail or with another herb that you want and make it a botanical wash that isn't good for pathogens it's healthy for beneficials and it's also healthy for the flowers and literally like washing the plants down it's they just love it and that's a really good preventative 
as well, and also to help get rid of an infestation. You want to follow that up then with predators. Yeah, sounds like a pretty good little uh, IPM regime there. So last question before we hit the little short fire ones at the end. You're going to have to forgive me. I'm going to mispronounce the name, but I have a feeling you guys will know exactly what I'm talking about. One of our viewers wanted to know, what are your thoughts on the sealed Wallapini greenhouses? Is that how you say it? Wallapini? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Wallapini. Uh, that's what we have on our property. When you say sealed, you know, um, I, you know, we like to have a flow through design because the the humidity stays nice, stable. It's stable. You know, the temperatures are more stable. The plants love it. It's Everything like a big just grows. Sink yeah, it's a of... huge biological sink, and we have them now all over. So we've been working with Wally Peenies. For a long time, We've inspired and people, other people to do it, and, and we have know. lots of designs that we've just freed up and given out to people. We've been working on it. Anytime we do consultations, we always talk to people about you know Wally Peenies and bringing that in, and then you're utilizing all beneficial things. You're utilizing the geothermal from the earth, and then you're utilizing the heat, you know, from the sun, and the that's just awesome. It's, just, it's 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 a great way to grow. Yeah, fantastic. So we're on to the last little quickfire questions. Um, so the first one, we'll probably we'll probably get two answers here. What's your favorite strain? Uh, well, I'm gonna have to say the Homesteader because that's what we're doing right now, and it's been really amazing to me. And I've been only wanting to smoke it, so I'm gonna go with the Homesteader. And that's got its roots in, um, let's see, a Jack. I Herrera, really love that Jack Herrera. Yeah. Um, which is like uh, a purple tie times the god bud times a really awesome Afghani. Zelly's so gift, we'll say. I'll say Zelly's gift, she'll say homesteader. Yep. <laughs> They're so uplifting. That's great. That's a good answer. Just out of curiosity, that Jack Hera that was used in the Zellies, is that that famous one that goes around or just a just a different one? It's a, well, it yeah, it was absolutely a well-known is. clone that came from Oregon, and it yeah, was, it yeah, came it from was Eugene. It, really it, special. One of the one of the best ones. So it was really special, and now it's in a lot of our genetics. So yeah. that was a really wonderful mother that we too. got. Jack Herrera and Super Lemon Haze are a big part of our um, genetics, and we like that lemon. Mm -hmm. Yeah, see, that's great because those are like two cuts or two strains, I should say specifically, where if you get that cut that's on the money you know like it's just it's almost unbeatable isn't it yeah, yeah. i like it a lot it's so true or when Beautiful you find that one seed too. too that you're just like whoa this plant is amazing you just want to be able to it propagate is. it yeah finished outdoors for us really nicely mm -hmm. yeah so a slightly you know derivative question instead of favorite strain what's your favorite land race acapulco gold i'm gonna go with acapulco gold too Damn. Which which has roots in the in the um, the Jack Herrera. Although the chocolate tie, I'll go with chocolate tie since she went with the. Yeah, and I could go with chocolate tie second. <laughs> <laughs> you should just both switch to chocolate tie now. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Did you guys? Sorry, I was going to say. Did you guys see any of the uh, the pearl tie that Bodie had? No, hadn't yeah, seen it. That was. But at, we were. Oh, we had brought down some of his uh, Thai strains uh, to Jamaica. Oh, okay. Yes, he would have seen him there anyway. <laughs> and the Pakistani Chitral. Yeah, that's another good one, which probably would have done well in Jamaica as well, wouldn't it? Because they, they flower a little later, don't they? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. we brought that down. So that's that's going down there. So we'll see how they go. We brought down so, so many different types of varieties. We'll see what, what comes up. We're excited to see what happens out of it. Mm-hmm. So excluding your own work, who's the breeder's work who you're most excited to pop next? Oh, that's so hard. I would have to list the top 10. Okay. That's tough. Go. I mean, we really <laughs> like the people that we've already mentioned, which is, you know, Mr. Bob Hemphill, um, you know, but the two of them, Graham and Darcy, are both, you know, they're amazing people. They have a connection with the plant. You know, Bodhi, beautiful. for sure. He's always, like, on such a higher level of things. And absolutely, Tommy, big ups. The connection that he has with the plant is so kind and true. Um, Green Source Gardens. Green Source Gardens. Makes amazing seeds. Um, Jesse from BioVortex makes making really, really beautiful intentional seeds. Um, Kush Kirk, our our friend, our family down in the Southern Oregon, or you know, they're not they're not selling he's not selling seeds actively, but it's the people that have the really intelligent garden beds. Yeah. A lot of the pure farm. The Snodgrass lot, family the genetics. Snod, Snodgrass family genetics. That's going to be a top one. That's going to be for. something to look for. Everyone should look up. Such beautiful intention the, there too. Yeah. yeah. There, there's so many breeders out there that are just now stepping in. You know, we've been trading seeds for three decades now. We've all been working together. And if we weren't working directly with the person, then indirectly we were working with them. And now it's like all of everybody's work that they're able to put forward. And aficionado, mean gene, amazing, you know, yeah, aficionado. Those guys. Can we keep talking? Yeah, we can keep, <laughs> uh, keep going, keep going. We already said Spliff. He has some really yeah. amazing mm-hmm. strains. Uh, yeah, okay. and I mean, I know that. Yeah. We evolved evolved oregon i mean yeah. he's been some amazing lion tree him. lion tree farms they're really doing awesome stuff with thcb lion paw he's also working with like cbg people are starting to specialize in different like cannabinoids and then you want to make sure to get those so then you can interbreed because they've got like really super high cbg or thcv house or of harlequin yeah house of harlequin wade, uh, wade laughter big ups to wade laughter thank you wade for bringing forth all the har- harlequin what an amazing humble beautiful person i mean he is of the earth you know if anybody gets to grow some of his strains we're only lucky yeah wow what a testament <laughs> uh so Moving on to the next little question, though, kind of similar to the first one, but you get a few choices. Desert Island strains. So I'll let you take two. I find two is a good number because everyone wants three, so it makes it that little bit harder. You can only take two strains with you. Oh, two strains with you. That's all you got forever. Well, I would probably take um, the, the healer is the seed that uh, mm. a strain that we've that we've yeah, created. Yeah, I think I would go with the healer. That is, you know, the, the half CBD half. Um, yeah, they're beautiful one to one. I would do that because it's really good if you don't feel good. So that one to one is super awesome if you're having a hard day on the island. You know, if you're feeling like, wow, this day is hard. I got sunburned. I'm gonna go for the one to one. I'll take, like go gold, I'll take like a golden pineapple, like... I uh, think I would go with the gold. I think I would go with an Acapulco gold. I think I'm going to go with a healer and an Acapulco gold. So a one-to-one, which is an ACDC cross with like a really awesome A40 AFCU type, super high mercy. I'm going to take the homesteader because that's the reason why we created it was for <laughs> homesteading. 
So I'm going to take the homesteader and the healer because after I'm done homesteading, I need to do some healing. <laughs> That's good. It's telling a story. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so the next one is what's as your. As long as there's lots of it, there has okay, to be lots, lots of yeah. it. Right? Yeah, yeah, infinite, infinite. Okay, there's times. plenty. Okay, that's, that's what matters. All right, we're Quantity good. probably was the first question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so, the flavors, flavor of the month, so to speak, tends to be very much a cyclical thing. What's your prediction for the next big flavor of the month? I think it might be the hemp. I think the flavor of the month is going to be a super high CBD. The cherries are coming on strong. Yep, and I think that... And not just cherry wine. Like, there's a lot of cherry sherbets and puffs and cherry fucking diesels it's amazing the 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 sour diesel and the and the chem dog and and the og i mean they're so gnarly and so good still and it's like you can like have all the new varieties and i mean the cookies have taken over you know in a lot of ways there's like a certain spice that you get from that that people like a lot um but um you know i think that people are going to go for the more lemony uplifting stuff personally coming up here in the future i think that we're seeing an uprise in the grapefruits too i think that the grapefruit strains are going to start going through the roof but i also think they're going to see a huge surge in really low thc and super high cbd full spectrum cannabinoids and that will be in like the the hemp work that has been done in colorado and beyond yeah cool i like those predictions uh one other thing is there's there's definitely going to be like new cannabinoids that we learn about so it's going to be a lot about learning those cannabinoids and i think the strains there's going to be a lot of specific strains for cannabinoids that's going to be the future that's a that's a that's one i kind of thought about myself actually so lucky last one here we go. If you could go back to one place in time, anywhere, where would you go and what seeds would you collect? I think I would have gone back to 1982 in South Africa and I would have gotten the Durban poison. Darn it. I missed out. Have you tried a good Durban? That like, you know, and it's one you over type of thing? Well, we've we've got somebody in South Africa that has sent us seeds that he's saying is definitely the best, but I've yet to see the Durban that I smoked in the 80s. That, to me, what I had seen was a beautiful Durban poison. I have not seen that since then. So, yeah. I think I would definitely like to go back, like, pre-industrial revolution, probably mid, you know, anything before you know, 1800s, maybe let's say a thousand years ago. And, and I'd like to go into the pygmies, pygmy tribes and smoke pygmy weed and build like pygmy bridges and, <laughs> and villages. That's what I'd want to do. And their rhythms. They're, I'd want to play so drums good. and sing with pygmies and grow weed in the jungle in the middle of Africa. That's a good answer, Josh. I was about to say, that's the best answer I've ever heard. Yeah, yeah, I think that one's really good. <laughs> all righty. Well, I think that one might bring us to the end of all the knowledge and information we've been able to get from you guys. Is there any comments or shout-outs you wanted to make? 
Uh, you know, shout out to all the, the people that are working really hard to bring this medicine forward to the masses. Um, shout out to you for putting this type of intention into the community and education. Shout out to all the pure farmers out there and all those people that are still working within in, in within integrity. And, um, and the biggest shout out, thanks to the plant. The biggest shout out to the plant. Thanks for bringing us together and helping us. You know, I mean, I know that she's made my life so much better and all of the people that we have, you know, been a part of. So big I like shout to give out a to shout plant. out to the earth for for giving us a place to do all this magic on and the stars and the sun yeah. for giving us a cosmic connection. Yeah, yeah pretty fantastic. much does. So thanks so much again, Josh and Kelly, for coming on the show. Thank you so much much for having us. Yeah, take care. Thanks so much. What a great fun this was. So there you have it, guys. A huge thank you again to Josh and Kelly for taking the time to talk to us. A huge thank you to you guys for listening through to the end. And a huge thank you to our Patreon gang. These guys are the MVPs. As always, thank you to Organic Gardening Solutions, 420 Australia, and Seeds here now best sponsors in the game you know them you love them i'll see you guys next time see you